Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. It's been a little while, and I've been uh, watching a fair amount of movies, so uh, I think we're just going to get started. Does it bother you, David? I know you want to get started, but I, David, <laughs> I've got, what's my weekly beef? Uh there are just certain turns of phrase that just get to me. And so like okay. you, when you said it's been a while, uh, like in a, in a few, in a couple movie, uh, a couple movies that I've seen somewhat recently or TV shows, uh, when someone's like, it's like, Oh, it's been a minute. Uh-huh. It's like, it's not annoying. I just don't, I don't, but it frustrates I, me when people say that. Cause like what, when did a minute become the stand in for the long, a much long, longer period of time? I feel like this is one of those things where, like, do you know when the, I know there's a name for this, this phenomenon where you don't know something exists. And then once you're aware of it, you see it oh, everywhere. Sure. Oh, because sure. I think using that usage of a minute is at least 20 years old. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, I, I, but so, I don't think I ever liked it. Okay. I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, no, I think I've used it that way. Yeah. Um, In uh, yeah. my, maybe my, I'm just trying to find the, think of the, the thought process behind it. And I thought like, okay, maybe it's a situation where it's a combination of, I haven't seen you in a long time, but time also flies. So it feel like I, it feels like it was just yesterday, but I know it hasn't been. So it's been a minute. I don't know. It's. Uh. Um, I, uh, uh, there's, there's a couple of those, but I, well, I hate when people misuse things, even though I understand that, if enough people misuse something, suddenly that's the use sure. now. Sure. But when people will be using that version of a minute, but they'll say a hot minute and sure. a hot minute is the opposite is supposed to be the opposite. A hot minute is a very short period of time. Yes. Yes. It's moving quickly because it's hot or yeah. it's hot because it's moving quickly, possibly. Uh, sure. Yeah. Friction. I get it. Uh, but another one, a thing like that, that's like what I was just saying where I never noticed something. And then a lot of people, and then suddenly I did. So anyway, my wife and I were watching an episode of transparent and someone said, let's, let's cheers to this or, or what are we going to cheers to? And I was like, well, that's not right. Cheers is what you say. Yeah. When you toast to something, you and say was, here's to that, <laughs> right. But not cheers to that. Yes. But that's what you, but then my wife was like, well, yeah, you're right. But people actually, people say, people use that that way all the time. Right. And since she said it, I've noticed it in multiple movies and TV shows yeah. since then. So, uh, yeah, that happens. It's exhausting. I think it's one more thing in the world that exhausts me. Um, I don't know what else you got going on. Uh, that's true. You got me. You can take a, you can take a minute to uh, a hot minute. A hot to minute. On that. Uh, all right. So let's uh, talk about some movies I watched and I didn't, because it's been a while since we've done one of these, I watched these movies a minute ago. There you uh, go. We're going to start with a terrific movie from 1984 directed by a friend of the show. And that's uh, Bill Duke's the killing floor. This is a, uh, um, uh, a, a movie that I guess premiered on PBS. So, but it was, it's one of those things that was like made as a movie movie, but like ended up 
being on TV. Uh, this is an episode we're actually going to be doing in the future about uh, yeah. uh, uh, differentiating between theatrical and TV movies and to what extent we ought to do that. Uh, that's coming up. But um, And this is maybe part of subconsciously why I wanted to do that topic. Um, and it's... Uh, have you seen the killing floor no i have not okay so it it takes place you'd well you'd love this part of it uh it it, it takes place in um around world war ii or sorry world war one in chicago and it is full of great character actors in bit parts All right. <laughs> um uh I, I i should have pulled up the full list before i uh before i started um saying all of that but uh you've got uh alfred woodard has a substantial part but in smaller parts you've got dennis freena you've got ted levine you've got john mahoney uh there's there's other people who pop up uh here and they're like ted levine is a this is 1984 he wasn't oh. very famous yet he's in did he like, sell the one voice? shot he he's he shout he he plays like a during a i think he, it's during a protest like a picket line he's a cop like shouting at people to step back okay yeah it's uh it's a very very brief moment but anyway um the main star of the movie is uh damien leek um and he plays uh a um a young black man who comes from i can't remember where somewhere in the south up to chicago because there's work there uh largely because a lot of men are going off to world war one mm-hmm uh, and so he gets work. His friend who comes with him ends up jo- not uh, not getting work, but instead joining the army. They they split up. So while while his friend's away overseas, he's working at this slaughterhouse, um, and he decides to join the union. And so the movie is very much based in reality. Damien Lee, Damien Lee is playing a real character. Almost all the characters in the movie are are real people. Um, and Bill Duke does a lot of like these sort of interstitials of just like documentary type filmmaking where Damien Leake will be like narrating what, mm. what was going on and you're getting, you're getting real footage from the time. And it's essentially, it's the movie is probably, uh, I, I would say maybe 15% just full, just straight documentary, but the rest of it is all uh, dramatization. Um, and it's a really interesting flashpoint uh in and and this this sort of thing around world war one um the unions were transforming in cities all over the country but uh, chicago uh was a big uh part of that where the unions were changing racially that um uh certain maybe uh, a, a lot of a, a lot of black people from the south were coming in and getting jobs and the union which had, uh, was white in the sort of pre-world war one american definition of white which mostly met anglo-saxons and people right. like slavs and italians and irish and uh, people like that weren't really considered white but then yeah. part they of the need reason, not apply that's what i said <laughs> but part of the reason that we eventually th- th- we eventually came to see those people as white is because the unions wanted to bulk up their white membership sure because they were like oh black people they're really not white um yeah. and so damien <laughs> uh, uh but the movie is so that that's obviously a problematic thing but the movie is ultimately very pro-union but mm. a lot of damien leek's characters conflict comes from the fact that he 
very he's he joins the union he's very pro-union and sees what the union can do but also is in full understanding of why most of his fellow black co-workers are suspicious of, of the union and see it as something that's uh, opposed to them so he's sort of caught between um uh, the the union and and uh, the other black workers. It's a, it's a really good, uh, really good movie. Really terrifically dramatized uh, movie. It's it's um, it's not just uh, informative, although it, it is. It's really kind of like a, a case study, a textbook version of this is how you make drama out of reality. It's a, really really good movie okay um and then on to a movie that unfortunately wasn't quite so good um so uh sorry uh the killing floor was uh re- a restoration was released in released in uh versatile cinemas by um by uh film movement classics i think um i get these confused because uh uh yeah, and then I think also film movie classics. I can't remember. Did a trilogy of restorations for Pride Month that was uh, pioneers of queer cinema. Mm. So it's three German movies uh, from the twenties and thirties, um, mm. uh, uh, early thirties, obviously. Um, uh, which, as we know uh, from the, Nazi history. Germany, had a little six month sliver in there <laughs> where they were super, <laughs> super into Pride. Um, uh, no, I mean that's uh, we're joking, but it's actually really uh, the rise of the Nazis and Hitler was very, very bad for uh, gay people in in Germany, uh, in, in in Berlin especially, which is a place that was, as we know from movies like Cabaret and TV shows like Transparent, and also just those. Sometimes uh, I get my facts from actually reading uh, history, mostly from movies and TV shows. Though uh, Berlin, in particular, um, was very uh uh progressive i guess by today's standards uh or by the standards of the time i mean um in in terms of uh uh queer identities in in transgender identity and all these sort of things so uh it's no uh, surprise that uh that that a number of german movies from this time uh explored these themes but the first one that it, that it starts with is a film by carl theodore dreyer one of the great directors of all time sure. uh and it's a movie called michael and it's shot by carl freund um who also appears in the movie uh hmm. and it's so it's it very uh beautiful to to look at uh but it's just it's just such a uh a rote melodrama in so many ways there's not a lot that's fun about enough that it's supposed to be it's about a person who's suffering it's a so uh, there's a it's basically about a famous artist who has an assistant and muse who's a young man and the young man is involved in a relationship with a young woman um and the artist is mad that the young man's attentions are being taken away from his work with him but really mad because he's jealous because he's passionately in love with this with this young man um and it just it's just it's very it's very soapy um but in a way that's kind of what's the word i'm looking for um just dull i guess is <laughs> but nice think, to look at do you think it is a situation where like if you had seen it at the time it would be certainly not dull uh, very much the opposite like you said it's it's rote and it's like well at the time it undoubtedly was not um, uh, maybe yeah i don't know what but you you know you, speaking about the time one thing that's interesting to realize is that 
you and I and pretty much anyone in 2020 watching this movie, it wouldn't, you wouldn't even think, it wouldn't even occur to you to think that this was some sort of veiled reference to homosexuality. It's so obvious. Sure. But at the time, because there's no overt like romantic right. gay content it was seen as something that was like oh it has undertones and it's but but now <laughs> it's weird how the perspective changes the the film itself hasn't changed but the perspective changes it, it doesn't even seem yeah. it doesn't seem revolutionary at all because it seems just so uh, by today's standards uh, i mean it, it just seems so uh so obvious like oh yeah okay. yeah so the, this is a we just think this is a story about a gay man and that's our, sort of our baseline it's not it's not like there's no point like half an hour into the movie you're like oh <laughs> that, <laughs> right yeah but yeah. i'm sure there were people at the time um uh anyway uh we can't go th- we always start off going too long uh what's right. next for you <clears throat> Okay, so uh, I there were some silent movies that I had not seen. There are still many I haven't seen. And uh, as someone who really not merely appreciates silent film, but also I try to champion it where I can, um, I decided to, uh, to catch up on some silent films. So uh, I watched Herbert Brennan's 1924 Peter Pan. Hmm. Um, which I enjoyed tremendously. And one thing that I really like about it is that, you know, because Peter Pan was a book, but not, but it was almost at exactly the same time. It was also a play and it became just as famous, if not more famous for being a play as being a book. And so when you watch this, they're they're clearly tapping into this the popularity of the play and so there's a real artificiality to things like for example you know nana the the dog uh, nursemaid and then the crocodile are clearly played by like a person in a costume and they're not even really trying to hide it and and the sets i mean it's i wouldn't say it's expressionistic but there is just uh, just a, a theatricality and to go back to that word, an artificiality to it that I really appreciate. And uh, the, the visual effects are a lot of fun. What they do with Tinkerbell is actually shockingly effective, like uh, turning her uh, into just like this light and mm-hmm. it's very ta- tangible thing that the characters are responding to. And um, yeah, I, I don't have, I wish I had more to say about it, except that it's just, a lot of fun. And one thing that really struck me and incidentally something that's going to be a bit of a thread throughout a lot of the movies that I talk about today, uh, or at least, you know, three or four of them is man, we like, we don't even leave for Neverland until like 25 to 30 minutes in. And this is not a long movie. And so it really spends a lot of time like in the nursery, getting to know the darling kids, getting to know, uh, Peter Pan himself and then the parents and just the whole situation so that you really get a sense. So when the kids uh, are, are given this offer of like going to this place and never growing up and never having responsibility, uh, it's a very, it's a very real thing. Um, And you, you definitely understand their desire to do that. Uh, And then similarly, once, once the conflict is over, which is to say once Captain Hook is taken care of, um, there's still a lot of movie left because it's still the characters 
uh, and Peter uh, himself trying to uh, wrestle with this idea of do I stay in Neverland or do I go and and uh, grow up? And so it's just very interesting because as time has gone on, there is a tendency, I think, to look at, okay, well, what are the most appealing parts of certain stories, whether it be, you know, Alice in Wonderland or Peter Pan or whatever. And then those things, movies tend to play that up and the other stuff and play the other things down. So like the, the idea of setting so much of the film in a recognizable reality, albeit one that is rendered in a very artificial way, um, so that so that the audience along with the characters can really indulge in this theme of what does it look like to grow up um it's really interesting because over time uh with the exception of the 2003 peter pan which i think did a great job uh of showing like the real uh, specifications specificity pardon me of um of what it means to grow up emotionally uh it's just very interesting to see like before peter pan became a you know it's been on tv they've filmed stage shows it's been an animated film it's been a live action film and then another live action like before it became all this what was it and it was this odd little meditation on growing up captain hook not not nearly as big a character he is simply a symbol of adulthood but not the only one. And so it's just very interesting to, to look at it. Similarly, like I I've never watched the silent version of Frankenstein. And I think I really want to now because I'd be really interested to see what was Frankenstein before Karloff. And that's also one that started as a book and became a very popular play. So I think that might be, that might be up next for me. All right. Well, up next for me, uh, continuing, it was Kino, not Film Movement Classics, who did this trilogy, okay. this trio of uh, uh, pioneers of, of queer cinema. Um, 1931's Mädchen in Uniform, directed by Leontine Sagan. Um, and this movie is terrific. Uh, it's very notable for being a 1931 movie with a female director and an entirely female cast. Hmm. Um, uh, it takes place at an all-girls school where all the girls are in love with one of the teachers and it's 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 uh um uh, this is one that if michael was not that coded this one's not (laughs) coded at all like all these girls love the teacher the teacher uh it's a boarding school they all live there and this teacher not only is she one of the teachers she also comes every night she comes to the dorms and kisses each girl on the forehead before she goes to bed. Uh, but there's a new student and, uh, the teacher kisses her on the mouth. And, uh, so, um, uh, things kind of, uh, uh, go a little crazy, uh, because this girl becomes, uh, obsessively in love with the teacher. The, some of the other students are maybe, uh, jealous or in awe of their relationship. It's, um, uh, uh, it, it's 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 every, in terms of it's everything that Michael wasn't in terms of, it's it's so much fun it's so lively it's so uh, uh, boisterous and loud and and um, it also has the very sort of like overheated dramatic emotions the you know we think of uh, when we think of melodrama but in yeah. a way that's that's uh, delightful and 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 satisfying. 
it kind of makes you wonder if like, if you look at the two and it's like, it's like, Oh, all right. Like uh, a same sex male attraction. Okay. There's a lot of shame there and all that. So we need to treat this very dour. And then like lesbianism, like now we're talking high fives all around. Uh, and then finally, uh, in, in terms of the, the trio of movies, a movie that I had wanted to see for a long time because I've, since I was a kid, I've been a big fan of Blake Edwards, Victor Victoria. So mm-hmm. I wanted to see the original, the 1933 Victor und Victoria directed by Reinhold Schunzel. Um, now and, what's the English translation on that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, war and peace. Um, uh, so, uh, if you know Victor Victoria, you know, you know the story. It's about a woman who becomes a successful stage performer as a, I guess what we would now say drag queen, but a female impersonator. So she's a woman who is pretending to be a man in real life and then going on stage, pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman sure. and becomes uh, uh, famous uh, for that. And the movie it's it's so clear why blake edwards with his sensibilities would would be attracted to this movie because it spends so little time it has so little interest in the plot machinations like yeah. the whole the whole scene her deciding to do this happens off screen literally like she meets this sort of down on his luck uh actor who tells her about female impersonators and then you cut directly to her like having cut her hair and dressed as a man and going into performing because the movie just wants to get to the next big set piece it's a it's a it's a classic sort of 30s comedy it's uh um it swings through the fences in every scene um the 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 two actors uh renata renata mueller and herman timig uh this herman timig who plays the 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 pompous actor on his way down um uh, uh which was played by um what's his name in victor victoria um i've never seen it actually uh yeah but you know the music man um what's his name robert robert preston, preston? That, sound right? that sounds right to me yeah, yeah. um that Herman Timmick is like is great. He's a fantastic clown. There is oh yeah, there is one um unfortunate there's a there's a thing where he has all these headshots of him as famous like stage characters. Here's when I played so and so, here's when I played so and so. And he does have one where he played Othello and it's uh it kind of took me out of the movie for a moment, because uh, it's uh, uh unfortunate. But um although that's not a you know white actors playing Othello is not a new uh, concept, certainly at the time. Yeah. Um, But uh, maybe the most, so the movie's slapstick, uh, hilarious um, comedy. Maybe the most fascinating thing to me is that instead of where you think the comedy is going to come from is like, she looks like a woman and then men are attracted to her and they're like, wait, she's a man. And like gay panic. <laughs> right. Instead it's the opposite. What actually happens is that when she's like dressed as a man going out, like, like showing up and going to restaurants and stuff, the women are hanging all over her. Like, so it's more of a joke about how what women really want in a man is a woman. <laughs> um, I can uh, see that. Yeah. There's a lot of funny stuff. Uh, I really, really dug it. Uh, really glad that I, that I've seen it. And all three of these uh, German uh, early queer cinema movies are available uh, through Kino's uh, Kino Marquee, I think is what it's called. They're, they're virtual cinema. Uh, so yeah, check those out. 
All right. You know, it's interesting you bring all this up because speaking of uh, homoerotic movies, though, I don't know this one. I don't think this one is aware of it. Uh, This is a a film that uh, we watched on Jen's birthday uh, because it's a film that she uh, not, not necessarily grew up watching, but watched when she was younger. And it is Rob Cohen's 2000 film, The Skulls. Oh, uh, <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen it. It's not good. It yeah. is not good at all. Um, it's man. It's just such a. It's such a product of its time, and I. That's not necessarily a crime, but like you watch and you're like, ah, yes, I remember all of this, um, and and it's about a, a secret society called the Skulls, and it's loosely based on the the. Skull and Bones, right, is what it's called. Um, But the society isn't as secret as it could be. Here's how you know where the Skull's hangout is. They have a giant skull uh, (laughs) above their their building. Um, And then when the characters, like I was, Jen and I were talking about it, and and she was asking, like, why I didn't care for it. And I said, well, and I brought up an early scene where these two guys are, who are already part of the, already part of the, the the fraternity or whatever you want to call it, the, the society. Uh, and they're sitting in the stands watching a young Joshua Jackson. He's on like the rowing team. And, uh, and it's like, and they, they literally are saying in front of everyone saying like, it's like, do you think we should have him join the secret society or whatever? Like they're just, it's like, well, it's not super <laughs> secret when you're saying that. Um, and so like, that's an example. It's like, okay, they're saying that because they don't have a very high opinion of the audience. Are they, um, and then they, uh, he's rowing and they shout from the shore. Hey, hey? do you want to join our secret society? <laughs> Okay, show up at this time. Uh, the password is <laughs> it's it's just password. Uh, so um, skulls password one is the, is the password. Um, exclamation point! If that doesn't work, um, and so uh, the thing is that the, there are good, like the first. I'd say the first twenty to twenty five minutes. Yes, it's written very clunkily, but visually it's very it's very interesting because they're trying to really make this this society feel very mysterious and that sort of thing. And I also think that the the cast is really good. You've got Joshua Jackson. You have Paul Walker, who I think does a really solid job in the character that he plays. William Peterson, Steve Harris, Craig T. Nelson. Good cast uh, all around. Uh, it really is just like. You know, you, when you're dealing with a secret society, like it, it really feels like it should have a lot more intrigue, uh, and that everything should be very hushed and all that. But it it moves into a into sort of an action thriller uh, kind of thing, and it, that's not a crime, but it does feel like it does so a little bit quickly, and along the way, again, like the dialogue is mostly just terrible, and the and the 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 hushed and the hushed tones and the the shadowy visuals give way to just kind of the standard functional at best uh way of of approaching things so it's it's not a, a good movie and again like you have uh all of these like uh attractive uh young men uh specifically uh like Paul Walker and Joshua Jackson, they, they are, I think they're referred to as like soulmates. They're like, they, they come into this situation together. Um, and, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a little bit, uh, a little bit homoerotic in that regard. Um, well, I mean, it was apparently a big enough success. They made two 
direct-to-video sequels. I remember yeah. they came out while I was working at, at at video stores. Well, and Rob Cohen would go on to make the first Fast and Furious movie. So, like, it it is it is. Oh, with I, Paul Walker. Yeah. yeah. So, like. I won't say the movie's well regarded, but it was successful enough to really, you know, uh, kick off. I mean, it didn't kick off Rob Cohen's uh, career, but he he has gone on to make. Uh, yeah, he had already made Dragonheart by now, and he made uh, that HBO movie, The Rat Pack, and so. Uh, and oh, and he also made Hurricane Heist, which I didn't see, but desperately wanted to. Like, you know, he he followed this up with some pretty big mm-hmm. movies, but he'd been well established by this time. Um, he had already made, uh, uh, let's see, Daylight and uh, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. So, uh, but it's it's an interesting movie just because of uh, the snap. It, the way that it's a snapshot of, of its time and movies of its time and that sort of thing. But by and large, it is uh, not a good film. Well, um, speaking of watching our wives favorite movies, I've, uh, uh, told you that, um, that's an ongoing project uh, here during, during yeah. quarantine. Uh, Natalie picking movies from either when she was a little kid or that came out, came out, uh, we'll get to one that came out when she was in high school. But, uh, I loved uh, Richard Benjamin's The Money Pit so much that uh, we followed uh, up with Richard Benjamin's Mermaids from 1990, starring oh. Cher and Winona Ryder and um, Bob. Is it Bob Hoskins? Uh, Bob Hoskins, yeah. yeah. Um, and he eats paper. Um, is yeah, that right? I think that's right. Okay. Um, also, Michael Scheffling, uh, who's Jake Ryan from Sixteen Candles. He's like, oh, okay, yeah. And he's in. Um, uh, what's it called? Like uh, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken or something like that? That sounds right, yeah. Uh, he was like a total, like, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Hunk. Uh, hunk uh, at the time. And then he, uh, you know, we talk about uh, actors who just decided to quit. Uh, yeah. Michael Scheffling doesn't normally make the list because he's not in the type of movies that we talk about a lot. But uh, yeah, he, I, I looked him up. He like stopped making movies not that long after uh, Mermaids and he like lives in like South Carolina or something and makes furniture for a living now. And he hmm. seems like a, a a cool, happy dude. <laughs> and isn't it weird that my first instinct would be like, good for him. Cause yeah. it's, it, it really is like, oh, he made it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the mob. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, mermaids is not the sort of, uh, uh, over the top, um, live action cartoon comedy movie that the money pit is, but it is a really good and really, really fun, um, uh, period coming of age, uh, uh, melodrama where, um, share and, uh, Cher is the mom of two girls played by, uh, one on a writer and a very young Christina Ricci, mm-hmm. um, and uh shares uh, character tends to uh move around a lot she's uh rootless she like basically has this pattern of like moving to a new town uh getting a job having an affair with her boss and then uh leaving leaving town when that affair uh ends uh and so we meet them at the beginning i can't remember they're living in like texas or new mexico or something and this affair is ending and so they relocate to somewhere in uh, is it Maine? I can't know. Connecticut. It's New Englandy uh, somewhere. Um, oh no! It's I think it's Massachusetts because they're a Jewish family. But one of the writers' character is obsessed with Catholicism and nuns. Yes. And uh, have you seen the movie? It, many years ago. Yes. Okay. Um, and so right there, like already, I'm 
I'm hooked because uh, I was raised Catholic and I uh, find that stuff fascinating, especially when it's coming from someone, uh, an outsider's uh, view of it. And your wife is Jewish and clearly was obsessed enough with Catholicism (laughs) to marry you. But, um, the movie is kind of, it's, uh, it's more probably a little bit more one of the writer's, uh, character story. Uh, like I mentioned, it's a coming of age and, um, the, it's no coincidence. I think that the obsession with Catholicism and nuns and that sort of chastity and purity is coming at the same time of her sexual awakening and her, the movie, uh, she narrates the movie and her inner dialogue and her, clear voracious carnal lust for michael sheffling's character uh is very funny the movie is uh um for for a movie that is um well i don't know what it's rated and i don't tend to uh know how to look those things up but um i would assume it's pg-13 given uh how old i was when i yeah it's pg-13 i saw it like when i when i still lived in denver so i was probably like 11 or 12 i think my parents watched it and i watched it uh, either with them or after it's it deals very frankly with the fact that this this uh uh young girl really really wants to have sex but also really really hates herself for that mm-hmm. at the same time because uh, of course that's also t- uh, mixed up in how she sees sex uh, uh happen with her her mother and how her mother uh is yeah. uses sex and then is hurt by sex and so uh there's a lot of complicated feelings going on um but she's pining after this older boy while uh Cher is um starting a friendship turned relationship with bob hoskins character which shares resisting because bob hoskins is not her normal type by which i mean he's a nice person yeah <laughs> um uh he yeah i mean bob hoskins seems i i feel like i guess on the surface bob hoskins seems like an unlikely romantic lead but yeah. uh he's very very charming uh in, in in this movie and does a great um american accent as always uh i re- i really really liked uh M- mermaids um, there's a lot of a lot of funny stuff, uh, and I would. Uh, uh, it, oh, it's also a great. It's weird that it. Winona Ryder's character is. Sorry, Winona Ryder made this after she made Heather's, but the mm-hmm. character seems younger, and it's yeah. a reminder of just how young Winona Ryder was in Heather's. She was actually only sixteen. Here, she's like eighteen, playing a sixteen-year-old. Yeah. Um. Uh. But it's a terrific performance from Winona Ryder. There's she has an amazing scene where she <laughs> she runs away from home and then gets like taken in out of the cold by this uh nice um uh christian family and so while she's waiting for bob hoskins to come pick her up and take her back home she's just spinning all these lies about the the uh, the fancy life she lives she's just making up or she has like essentially a long monologue to these two little uh christian kids uh where she's talking about her rich fancy life and it's it's hilarious it's a great uh, a great performance from a still very young woman writer anyway um was that my first one Yes, I believe so. Oh, shit. I can't be going on this long. Um, next up, I watched uh, a very long documentary um, that I think I'll be posting a review. I think the Blu-ray has already been released by Criterion. Uh, Kon Ichikawa's Tokyo Olympiad. Uh, it's about a two-hour and 40-something minute documentary about the uh, 1964 uh, Tokyo 
summer Olympics. Um, and so it doesn't really have a story or anything. It's basically just like, uh, I mean, there are some backstories, I guess, about individual athletes. And it's funny, you know, when you watch the Olympics now and NBC or whoever will have these little like cut together pieces of right. like, like, uh, getting to know this athlete before, you know, uh, uh, it feels very much in retrospect, very inspired by this movie, which does, does a lot of that, but also just has unbelievably gorgeous, uh, uh, shots. And, um, but it's also kind of like, like watching the Olympics. I found myself getting a little bit bored during the sports that I don't care about, but being very into like the pole vaulting, part is like is awesome it's like one of my favorite parts of the movie um but then there's like a long like uh marksmanship or, or there's a part where the, you know there's people shooting uh rifles and i i didn't care i wanted to get back to something that that i liked yeah. um uh but um yeah it's definitely worth uh watching uh Kony Chikawa would return to uh the olympics for the 1972 uh, Munich Olympics uh, and the movie Visions of Eight, which uh, is a movie that is eight different directors, hmm. um, each doing a different either event or a different take on on the Olympics. We I talked about it when we did our Milos Forman episode because he does the shot put, uh, which he in, in that movie he really uh, really lays into how silly shot put can be <laughs> because that's Milos <laughs> Milos Forman's impulse was always to sort of uh, take the piss out of whatever uh, he, yeah. he was he was dissecting uh whereas here you've got uh the shot put stuff is is very cool um so uh, it's a good comparison if you like documentaries if you like sports movies um or if you like movies that are just beautiful to look at tokyo olympia you can't go wrong all right so speaking of movies that are beautiful to look at here's another silent film that i uh you know you're familiar with one very specific iconic moment from this movie. Uh, but as it turns out, there's more movie to that. Uh, and that this is Rupert Julian's 1925, the Phantom of the Opera. Um, we know what the Phantom looks like. We've seen that makeup uh, from Lon Chaney. So, you know, the, the, the shock of that moment is, is gone by the time you, you see it, unfortunately. Uh, but thankfully the rest of the movie is really marvelous. Uh, it is absolutely gorgeous. I, I really love the way the art direction. I mean, this is a lavish film, which makes sense because it takes place in this opera house and uh, with obviously the, uh, the, the big chandelier and all of that. Um, it, it dictates that this is how the film, this is, this is how the, this world looks, but it's just as lavish underground as it is above ground, albeit in a slightly different way. And so there's this catacomb quality to it, this maze like quality to the, the sewers underneath. And, uh, and it's shot in a way that, uh, you know, it's, it does that, uh, wonderful color tinting so you have like mm. these night these nice reds and greens and it, it really creates this otherworldly quality to to the film and it really does a great job of of creating a, a mood uh so much so that you know when you when people when characters are talking about the phantom of course i mean at this point not unlike peter pan really um we are so familiar with this story but in a different context we are because of you know the andrew lloyd webber musical uh we are 
trained to think of the the story of the Phantom of the Opera as being like the height of tragic romance. Uh, so then you go back to this before that really started and you see it's a tale of obsession and a tale of, of mystery. You don't know if the Phantom is real, where he's coming from, and the the way that these characters when you see a character like off backstage by themselves and they're just surrounded by shadow it really does have a creepy quality and you feel like oh the phantom could come from anywhere and you don't really know what he is going to do uh and i will say that the concept of of romance outside of the mind of the phantom himself it, it is not in this film like uh they they do not make this out to be like ah what a tragic quasimodo-esque uh situation <laughs> no it's like they don't waste much time and be like yeah he's an escape mental patient uh and uh he just locks into this uh, character christine and she does not want any part of him um and uh, does not feel she feels vaguely flattered at best uh but most of the time uh horrified but but it is a film that is really worth watching Uh, it is it's one of the one of the most beautiful silent films i've i've ever seen and with a really nice a really nice consistent tone and mood and you know it's i i sort of to me sort of like you know harold lloyd hanging off of the building these are like these iconic images the unmasking of the phantom is something we've seen just in pop culture and so because we've seen that it i've and maybe i'm projecting but uh because I saw that, I felt like, okay, no, I'm a fan of the opera. I get it. I get it. Um, I didn't, I didn't say like, no, I've seen it because I've seen that five mm-hmm. seconds of footage, mm-hmm. but I felt like I got it. And uh, in watching it, I was so, I was so grateful that I took the time because it is uh, just a marvelous movie. And, uh, and I recommend it highly. All right. Uh, I'm sticking with documentaries and a movie I've been meaning to get to since 2018. And now I'm kicking myself because I didn't get to put it on my list of the best movies of 2018. And that's the documentary Oscar nominated documentary. I think, uh, Hale County this morning, this evening. Hmm. Um, did you see this at the time? Um, uh, I did not know. Uh, it w- but it was nominated for an Oscar, wasn't it? Oh gosh. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not as up and on my, uh, documentary, uh, Oscars. What was it called again? Hale County this morning, this evening. Um, and it's a it's a not a uh, much of a narrative documentary. It's a um, more of a freeform uh, type of look at a bunch of uh, people in the same uh, area, mostly. Um, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the high school basketball team uh, because I think the director coaches basketball. <laughs> the guy who directed it, he's never, he'd never made a movie before. Mm. Um, and uh, it's it, and, and, and so it's just a lot of long shots of just people talking or like just shots of the, the, the night sky while you hear people talking off camera. Um, it's... Uh, of course it's like rural south so you've got that sort of built-in great nighttime summertime like soundscape of of crickets and 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 bugs and that stuff that i that i love and i always forget how much i miss when i go back to missouri sure you know because you don't like it's weird that it's uh, i guess we're on the edge of a desert here and it's quiet here at night yeah. um 
in in Missouri when uh, at night you you step outside and you just hear just a whole blanket of sound. Uh, and so you certainly during the summer you hear the yeah. cicadas constantly. Yeah. Um, so you've got that you've got that uh, going on. I think he, there is uh, while that's not a story per se, uh, there is something that he's getting at, which is about I think. Um, uh, I think he's looking at black youth and potential and contrasting that with the lack of options for that potential, because you've got a lot of these very talented, very uh, healthy, um, ambitious uh, uh, black teenagers. Um, and then you've got it contrasted with black adults who don't have as many options. They have, dead-end jobs they, they don't make uh uh a, a, a lot of a lot of money um it's it seems like that's what was on his mind while he was making the movie but the movie is not overtly about uh anything it's just about sort of living in this community for a brief it's not even 90 minutes long just a a, a brief time of of hanging out and finding the beauty in the everyday there's a great there's a shot that i, I, I to describe it if you described it to me beforehand, I don't know that I would have understood, but the pa- it's two parents watching TV while their little kid, probably like, I don't know, two, when do you start like walking? Um, Around uh, there. there. Uh, I'm I guess sure that's, yeah. Um, like stands in front of them and then runs down to the end of the hallway and then runs back in front of the couch. And then, and then literally the shot goes on for like four minutes of the kid just like running. <laughs> but, but what's funny is he's not just like bouncing back and forth. You see him stop and make the decision to start running again every time. <laughs> and it becomes very funny, uh, uh, to watch. Um, I really thought, I thought the movie was, uh, just overpoweringly beautiful. Uh, indeed it was nominated for best okay. documentary. Uh, and then also, this is clearly why I put these movies on my to watch list at the same time. Uh, I think another movie was nominated for documentary short subject. Um, and that also has uh, bizarre punctuation. The title is period end of sentence uh which is a movie about a group of women who make and sell um uh pads in india um Mm. in in a place where um menstruation is shameful and not talked about or not acknowledged a lot of the time um there's a there's an interesting part where they're they've made these pads and they're trying at, at first they're plan is to sell them to local convenience stores but the men who own the convenience stores won't even stock them so yeah. they end up having to go sort of door to door and and sell and sell pads uh it's a, a interesting story but it's just it's made like every other yeah sort of uh uh issues doc a little like the music's a little too lighthearted. it's like it, it's this human interest charming angle that yeah. uh, uh that doesn't do much for me. So uh, a, a worthy cause and, and a worthy watch as a member of society. I'm glad that I've seen it, but uh, it's as a, as a documentary, it's nothing special at all. It's, it's pretty run of the mill. All right. So we're, uh, we're now to my first uh, rewatch and I try to avoid talking about rewatches on here unless I have some new thing to think about Uh, or talk about, uh, at least new for me. Uh, And so this is a film that, man, I'm sure I know that this is the same for you, but like there are some movies that are super important uh, 
for people our age. They just love them so much. Not even necessarily movies that they grew grew up with. Um, And sometimes I'm right there with them. Sometimes I'm not. I'm right there with them with Office Space. uh, Not so much Tombstone. And every once in a while, there will be a movie that like everyone our age just loves so much. And... I give it chance and chance and chance. And even if I, even if I think like, yeah, it's not bad. Um, I certainly don't think it's the best movie ever, regardless of what uh, Ralphie Cifaretto says. And that is Ridley Scott's gladiator. Um, Yeah. I I think I'm with you. I didn't care much for it at the time uh, either. I saw it with my dad in the theater and I appreciated the spectacle. Of course. Um, I appreciated the performances and yet I came out feeling oddly empty i've watched it a few times since then every once in a while i get this i get i i mean maybe this is uh, to the film's credit every once in a while i get the urge to watch it and then i watch it i'm like why did i want to watch this um and so recently uh i thought like okay i haven't seen gladiator in a while let's watch gladiator and so uh jen and i watched it and and the, the, the thing that struck me, the thing that I really like this time around, again, going back to what I was saying about Peter Pan, the movie takes a long time to quote unquote, get going. And I say that in the best possible way. It like, there's a scene between Russell Crowe and Richard Harris that is very, very long. And I love that. I love like how much time they spend get, letting us get to know these characters and the relationships. And then once the plot really kicks in, I'm still invested, uh, especially once Oliver Reed shows up, who's marvelous in the film. Um, and I do appreciate the, the, the way it transports us to this whole other world, one that is, that is foreign to us, certainly. Uh, but I think what gets me about it is that like, I am perfectly fine with empty spectacle. Some of my favorite movies are empty spectacle, but I think there's something particularly frustrating about a movie that is empty spectacle, but it, but it gives the impression of being so very, very important uh, with its tone, with the performances, with the type of, of dialogue that's, that's out there. And I'm not saying gladiator should have been lighthearted, but at the same time, it's just, it's, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is not as heavy as Gladiator is or Bridge on the Require or other like these other uh, uh, epic movies. Um, oh, uh, sorry, those are fireworks. Uh, my, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, don't worry. That's something you might hear from time to time. I haven't been shot <laughs> that you know up until the moment that maybe that is yeah. what happens where they launch a firework and you'll let into us my, know yeah i'll be like okay guys just a heads up i have been shot <laughs> that one wasn't a firework uh although my insides are on fire so yeah so i think what got me about the reason that i that i feel particularly empty when i see it is because the film seems so convinced of its own heaviness and importance and so, and so like, I, I'm along, I'm along for the ride. I'm buying into it. And then once it's over, I just think like, Oh yeah, there's nothing there. And, th- and again, that's okay if the film knows it, but I don't think gladiator knows it. And it's not the fault of any of the actors. They all do a fine job. I think it is just, it's, I think it's just Ridley Scott, uh, who 
might maybe confused the bigness of the film visually with like a thematic bigness and treated it as such. And uh, yeah, once again, like I came away thing, uh, appreciating certain things more this time, but still feeling just totally empty. I need to get on board. I, I, I need to learn to watch Ridley Scott movies from the point of view of the people who really like them, like later Ridley Scott movies, because there are people who really like Prometheus. There are people who like, I mean, uh, Mad Zoller sites put alien covenant on his top five movies of the year, which is obviously stupid. <laughs> I didn't see alien covenant, but like there's something that appeals to people that I haven't been able to get. Um, but maybe because I I've only seen gladiator the once and I didn't care much for it, but maybe I should go back and watch it, try to watch it, not caring about the stuff that bothers me about it and find some other way into it and see what these people uh, respond to. I, I totally get what you're, what, what you're saying. Um, and at the same time, I don't, I mean, I, you know what? I enjoyed the Martian and over time I've come to really appreciate Black Hawk down. Didn't care for it much at the time. Um, I like both those movies. But uh, I guess I'm thinking more about Prometheus. Sure. And and I I abhor Alien Covenant. Covenant. Like that was my least favorite movie of that year. Um, And then there's stuff like Matchstick Men, which I think has some good stuff to it. Um, Yeah, it's just uh, he's he's an odd director. Um, He's he's obviously talented and competent and very capable. But I feel like he's I mean, he's. He's totally inessential for me at this point. Um, uh, I know. I think this has reached the level of like trivia that everyone knows now, but do you know about the gladiator sequel that Nick cave wrote where Maximus yeah. like goes to hell and then is reborn uh, in various again and ages and yeah. very, like throughout time. Sounds uh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> see now like, on one hand that sounds ridiculous, but on the other it's like, well, it's, I'm much more invested in the concept of that because it's so insane and genuinely ambitious as opposed to gladiator narratively being the exact opposite of ambitious. Uh, all right. Uh, next up for me, I watched the movie I've been meaning to get to for a long time. I don't know why I put it off. It's only 63 minutes long and that's 1932's the most dangerous game. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, I, that it was between that and, uh, another film that I'll be talking about uh, oh, so later. You didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. Oh, but like, been it was, it was a coin, coin flip between this other film and most dangerous game. That's, Oh my gosh, that would have been, I'm so angry at myself now. (laughs) Um, so you haven't seen it before. No, I haven't. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a delight and it's clearly, I mean, I think, um, a lot of times when we talk about pre code, we tend to be talking about like sexual content, Sure, but, um, the sort of, just nihilistically brutally violent uh, uh uh i mean not maybe by today's standards in terms of like gore or anything but just like how many people in this movie just die uh, and are and are killed and the and the pure uh like unwavering evilness of the of the bad guy uh feels like something uh i mean it feels like a movie that is somewhat immoral maybe hmm. but in a way that i like not in the way that i judge it for um um maybe amoral is a a better word uh but it's also like i 
suggested from the runtime it it wastes no time it's there's a famous hunter whose uh, uh ship uh sinks off the coast of an island and so everyone all his friends his hunter friends and the crew of the ship are all dead five and a half minutes into the movie uh and then he washes up and uh on shore and goes and gets taken into the home of this eccentric uh rich hunting enthusiast who lives on the land and finds that oh there's another there's a brother and sister who are also here uh because their ship crashed too and obviously this guy's luring ships to the shore to crash so he can yeah. uh he, he can hunt people uh it's just a nasty bit of fun it's very excessive um, it's over very quickly, and I liked it quite a bit. Oh man, um, I'm I'm frustrated that I didn't watch it because the movie I did <laughs> I chose to watch I did not necessarily love. But we'll get there. Um, and then now, then I watched the new movie. Okay, we've talked about this phenomenon before. I watched this movie, and I was like, "All right, there's some good stuff in it. I it's not terrible, you know, but it uh, maybe has a few a few two demerits for me to really say that I liked it. But then everybody else starts being starts hating it and i'm like oh hold on sure he's not irredeemable and now i feel like i kind of like it more uh and this is um the uh uh back to reunited and it feels so good uh david kep and kevin bacon in you should have left sure uh the the team uh who brought you the underrated uh 1999 the the other movie about a kid who sees, sees dead people from 1999 yeah. stir of echoes um you should have left uh takes place mostly in uh wales uh but kevin bacon plays a uh, a very wealthy man whom we understand we eventually get with the whole story but at the beginning at the beginning we kind of understand that this guy has been uh sort of vilified by the media we don't know like he's uh he's been canceled maybe we don't know um but he's got a excuse me, he's got a new uh, younger wife and young child. His wife is played by Amanda Seyfried, so uh, very young. And normally I uh, don't like the May-December thing, but that's v- clearly this is like something the movie is about. Like, okay. Uh, um, and she's a famous actress, and she's got a shoot coming up in, in England, so they decide to go to Wales a bit early and rent a house and stay there for a, a couple weeks before she has to go on this uh, week, like eight-week-long shoot or whatever. And the house, uh, it's a haunted house type of, type of movie. Hmm. Um, I, I don't want to go too far uh, into it, but um, uh, I think all the, all, all the performances are, are very good. I've been a fan of Amanda Seyfried um, since... Uh, I guess probably Mean Girls and then Big Love. Um, I, I've I've always really liked her work. Kevin Bacon, obviously, you can't go wrong with Kevin with Kevin Bacon. Um, and they're really the only two. Uh, uh, them and the and the child actor are really the only two uh, actors for a couple of townspeople uh, who show up uh, here and there. But uh, it's mostly just them alone in this uh, malevolent house. Um, and uh yeah some of the stuff maybe seems a little uninspired but also david kep who also made another underrated movie uh secret window the yeah. stephen king adaptation i think i'm just drawn to to his um sort of uh workmanlike skill at sort of jumps and shivers like he's he's very good at uh at at evoking certain reactions in in me um and doing it without seeming like he's uh phoning it in or pandering uh, yeah uh, he seems to care about his 
the psychology of his characters uh, and how uh, and how it is affecting the supernatural how the supernatural is affecting it so yeah i i kind of liked you should have left not enough to really recommend that you because this is one of those universal like probably cost 20 bucks to sure to watch i don't think that i'd recommend dropping 20 bucks on it uh but um it's it's not bad you've put me in the mood to rewatch stir of echoes and that's never a bad idea um okay so for me uh this is a, a film directed by, I believe, the directorial debut of Patrick Volrath, which is 7500, starring uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You can find my review of Battleship Retention. And uh, it's, so the story is, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the co-pilot uh, of this of this uh, commercial flight from Berlin to Paris. Uh, he's American, but his, you know, his co-pilot, the, the, the main pilot, I don't know, is... Uh, is German. And so then uh, terrorists take over the, the plane um, and he locks them out, but, and he knows that he can't let them into the, into the cockpit because if he does that, then like the whole plane is in trouble, but uh, they, uh, and he's able to see just outside the cockpit via a monitor. And so like, they'll bring people up to, to the camera and like, threaten them and cut their throat and all that sort of thing, unless he lets them in. And of course he knows he can't do that, but psychologically that's very hard Mm -hmm. uh, when that's happening. Not to mention like his, his girlfriend and the mother of his child is like one of the stewardesses uh, flight attendants, pardon me. And um, so that's all, that's all well and good. It's, it's essentially like, okay, it all takes place in one location. Uh, it reminds me of Locke in that way, uh, a film that I, that I mostly like. Um, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, does a really great job. He creates a, a character that is soft-spoken and clearly, fiercely intelligent, uh, who is immediately out of his depth and doesn't know what to do because the is the the primary pilot, an older man who has more experience in, in everything, uh, is injured, and so it's it's all on this this young guy. Okay, great. It's a good solid premise like the first 40 minutes are great i'd say um but then i do think that the that the director doesn't trust his premise um and and worries that the audience will get bored or whatever it is and so without going into how he just keeps finding ways to subvert the the premise and be like, okay, well, we're only in, in this one place and for all intents and purposes, our character is alone. Uh, but let's keep finding ways to make that not the case. Um, and the ways that it does that, I think are a little bit contrived. And I'd say about an hour in the film decides it wants to be about something and does so in a way that feels pretty clunky to me. Uh, so, I, I can't really recommend the movie except that Joseph Gordon-Levitt does a really great job, um, doesn't overplay the character. And I think visually it looks really good as well as it should. I mean, when you only have one location, you need to make sure it looks good. And just the, the way that, cause it's a, it's a, an, an evening flight. So the characters are lit by just whatever lights are in the cockpit. And so it really creates a nice atmosphere. Uh, but overall I'd say the movie is, uh, fairly forgettable. Uh, all right. Um, 
I forgot what I, speaking of forgetting, forgot. Okay, so my next movie, I watched uh, 1941's Meet John Doe, which is a Frank Ca- a Frank Capra uh, movie um, that I had not seen before. It's also, uh, Gary Cooper made three movies that came out in 1941. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made Ball of Fire with, uh, um, with Barbara Sandwick, and he made Sergeant York with Walter Brennan, and now... Then there's Meet John Doe, which is Barbara Stanwyck and Walter Brennan, um, but directed by Frank Capra, not Howard Hawks, who directed the other two. Anyway, I had a busy 1941. But, um, man, Meet John Doe, it's two hours long, and it is almost perfectly neatly divided into being really good for an hour and um, just exhaustingly dumb for the second hour. <laughs> this, is, this is where Frank Capra's sentimentality and corny belief in the american spirit crosses over to actually being insulting like i Mm. like a movie that is ostensibly about americans coming together is maybe one of the uh has maybe less actual faith in americans than any movie that i've ever seen and Mm. it doesn't seem intentional um it just seems um cynical in a, in a way uh the first half is cynical in a good way i think uh it starts off with um uh an image a terrific terrific image that is still very uh, unfortunately still very relevant today there's the the uh, offices of a newspaper and it has etched in the side something about like a free press for a free people and those those uh, uh those letters are literally like jackhammered off the building and replaced <laughs> by uh, a new one that says like a new streamlined uh, newspaper because the paper has been bought out yeah. and they're laying off people left and right. And so Barbara Sandwick, in order to save her job, uh, she's like a columnist. Uh, she writes a letter that she pretends she received about uh, from a man named John Doe or like, you know, signing off as John Doe who says that to protest the state of American society on Christmas Eve, I'm going to throw myself off of city hall and commit suicide. Um, and, uh, um, instead of when, when they find out it's fake, uh, uh, instead of firing her, the newspaper seeing an opportunity decides to cast, uh, a John Doe to pretend and then she'll write speeches for him and they'll write oh, a, that's a, a, great a, weekly, a weekly column. And, uh, so Gary Cooper plays, a uh, a, a former minor league, uh, ball player who hurt his arm and is sort of, uh, transient now. And Walter Brennan's his, uh, best friend. Um, uh, and there's, Oh yeah. The, one of the best jokes is before they are looking you know outsiders who need work there's looking on the new newsroom like who who here can be our john doe and they say one guy and the one guy goes uh what throw myself oh he was like what commit suicide not on christmas i'm superstitious um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that that whole first uh hour leading up to his sort of like final big like he becomes a big uh uh the star you know people love his column and then he signs off with this like public appearance and a big speech and then he leaves the city and you see him and walter brennan uh just like uh playing the uh what's the the fucking uh harmonica and uh riding the rails you know going on to the next town and um and that's about an hour into the movie and then the second hour starts uh which is when the even though he's left the sort of john doe is a 
as an idea is taking root in cities all over the country and there are these john doe societies and uh, and so then you've got this tale about the sort of powers that be trying to get john doe back get gary cooper's john doe back into things so that they can harness this voting block essentially yeah. um and, and exploit it uh and that part is just it's just too corny it it's so samey there's just one idea to every scene and it happens over and over and over again um uh barbara stanwick is largely sidelined for the second half she's mm-hmm. just like uh oh i'm so worried about uh, and i can't remember what uh john does what gary cooper's character's actual name is um but uh it's uh, it's too bad because it's really fun it's a really fun movie uh for an hour there's a part because uh, they put they put gary cooper up in like a hotel room so he's got like a whole like a fancy like suite um and there's a part where they don't have he because he his whole goal is to use this to get back into playing baseball so he's <laughs> there's a part where he and walter brand is pretending to be the catcher he's pretending to pitch they're not actually holding any holding a ball they're just pretending to throw a ball back and forth while the newspaper guys are um talking to him about the next column but the newspaper guys are sort of like without thinking about it reacting as if there's an actual ball traveling through the air hmm. so they're like ducking out of the way <laughs> like it's a it, there's so much fun in the first hour yeah. of this movie that it's a bummer how bad the second hour is yeah oh, it's too bad it's just too long uh, yeah the uh, all right. Um, did I know? Yeah. Oh, and then another one. Um, uh, another movie that my wife loved when she was uh, younger and that I had never seen 1992's honeymoon in Vegas. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, which is uh Nicholas Cage and Sarah Jessica Parker and James Caan. Um, and a bunch of other, uh, uh, fun people show up here and there. Pat Morita's in it. Uh, uh, Peter Boyle, uh, shows up. Um, the guy who played Johnny roast beef in Goodfellas is in this and his character's name is Johnny sandwich. It's clearly a reference. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, and uh, it's it also weird. This is 1992 in three years, Nicholas Cage will be back in Vegas in a very, very different. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and also, Oh, this movie uh, is breaks. My, I, I've always, I've commented on how often in movies and TV shows, when characters go to Vegas, they stay at Caesars. It's, it, I don't know why it happens, but like the hangover is Caesars and uh, Gloria bell is Caesars. And a lot of TV shows like modern family, they stay at Caesars. I'm not sure why everyone stays at Caesars, but here they stay at Bally's, which is fun because I've stayed there multiple times. And so I can actually see like James Conn and Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub plays like the concierge at, at Bally's uh, having a conversation. And I'm like, I know, I know right where that is. <laughs> uh, um, that, uh, I've been there multiple times. It's fun. Um, uh, but yeah, so Nicholas Cage loses a bunch of uh, money that he doesn't have in a poker game to James Conn and James Conn, uh, having set everything up for this purpose in, in the first place, says, I'll forgive your debt if you can let me spend a weekend with your fiance, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. And so he's trying to woo Sarah Jessica Parker, but he's like a, a sort of organized crime uh uh, hmm. uh anyway he's a mafioso i guess is uh and the early uh stuff in, in when they first get to vegas is a lot of fun um and then he takes her to hawaii and nicholas cage is like trying to track her down and that whole the whole middle section of the movie is um kind of dull and also uh the movie has the problem of 
that I think a lot of lazy sort of romantic comedies have, which is insisting, well, these two people need to be together because they're the two stars of the movie, but not actually making a case for why they need to be together. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the whole time I'm just like looking at Nicolas Cage from Sarah Jessica Parker's point of view and being like, this guy clearly sucks. Like this is not the guy for you. There's no redeeming qualities. Uh, James Caan also not the guy for you for other reasons, but uh, honestly there's a better case to be made for James Caan up until uh, the end when he becomes more of an asshole. But I would say a lot of the movie can be forgiven for its terrific, terrific finale. Just, just, just almost classical, like over the top, the way that it engineers the plot and engineers the characters in such a way that you've, you're back in Vegas, like the, the strips lit up, you've, managed to get Sarah Jessica Parker into a showgirl costume and managed to get Nicolas Cage into an Elvis impersonator's costume and had him jump out of a plane into this, like the middle of this crowd of people. It's like the way that the movie engineers like gets to that is surprisingly organic, uh, and, uh, results in a, uh, terrifically enjoyable finale to a movie that I wasn't really rooting for up until then. So I would say it's uh, worth the rental uh, if you like those kind of old-timey rom-coms. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, when it came out. I have, aside from the skydiving Elvis, I have very little uh, memory of it. Um, although it's interesting because it's written and directed by Andrew Bergman, who made The Freshman in right, 1990, which, which about, I talked yeah. about last time. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, the next film for me is Spike Lee's To Five Bloods which uh, stars our good friend, Paul Walter Hauser, um, in a very small role, by the way. But uh, this, this is a, I mean, it's a Spike Lee movie in every possible way, including it's very messy um, and very ambitious. It's trying to be about everything. It's trying to incorporate the, the current pardon me, the current moment uh, whilst, while also incorporating Vietnam and then telling a very specific story with these characters. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's odd in that regard. And I don't think it always, I don't think it always works narratively, uh, maybe even uh, thematically, but where it, but it, where it really comes together is in the performances and the characters, both in how they're written and, and how they're played and how they all work together. Um, you know, you have, uh, so the story is these, these five uh, African-American uh, guys are in, are soldiers in Vietnam and they stumble upon a, a big uh, trunk of gold and they decide to bury it and they will come back uh, years later and, uh, and dig it up and then they will all be rich and they'll be fine. Um, unfortunately, one of them played by Chadwick Boseman does not make it out of Vietnam. And so uh, when the film starts, these uh, the, the remaining four, they're much older now and they're coming back uh, ostensibly to gather the remains of their of their friend. But in actuality, I mean, there's that, but also to, to get the gold. And, uh, you know, the the ensemble includes Isaiah Willock Jr. and Clark Peters. Uh, and then they and then other characters kind of join them along the way. Uh, but to me, despite this being an ensemble, there really is only one lead and that's Delroy Lindo. And I am not alone in saying this. 
And this is not a thing I say lightly. Uh, I cannot imagine a better performance this year than wow. Del Rolindo. Like you and I have been fans of his for a long time. I think I probably first became aware of him with get shorty. If I had to guess, uh, he'd probably been in things before that, but that's probably the first thing I saw him in. And then he would go on to be probably the best part of cider house rules. And, uh, I really enjoy him in heist. So he can pull off, uh, you know, Elmore Leonard dialogue, a David Mamet dialogue. Um, and I've, I've always liked him. And I'm so excited that he got an opportunity. It's not that he's like hurting for work or anything. He works consistently, but I'm so happy that this late in his career, he got an opportunity to play a character like this. It is a towering performance. It is a character that, that is frustrating. He's like a, he's a big Trump supporter. He's got his, his, uh, uh, make America great, uh, great again hat. Oh, wow. Um, but the film does not necessarily, I mean, the film is not in favor of Trump, but it doesn't necessarily condemn this character, uh, which I appreciate even though he is on top of, and you just get the sense that like, he is just so angry about Vietnam, about racism, about, everything about you know immigrants coming in and taking jobs and so i think it does equate like that level of anger in some cases justified with this character i think it takes that anger it's like okay we can see how he arrived at voting for a care voting for a presidential candidate who capitalized on people's anger and so uh but i think that's an interesting aspect to the to the character and he's just he's funny he's damaged there are times when he is a, he could be seen as the antagonist uh, to the mm. degree that there is one, and yet you are with him every step of the way. It is a performance every bit like it's. I compare it. I don't know if you ever saw uh, in a lonely place um, with Humphrey Bogart, which is a, a marvelous film and maybe my favorite performance of his. Where it's just like the or, or I would you know what I would compare the performance and the character to like Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull which is like I'm not really on board with this guy but I am my eyes are glued mm. to what this actor is doing I cannot and I don't think I'm overselling it I cannot sell I like I cannot say enough wonderful things about this performance I'm so like the the whole movie is strong and there are moments that are really powerful all around but to me like this movie when I, when I think about it, I think of Delroy Lindo first and foremost, and I, I recommend the movie in general, but like, this is a, this is like the most good morning America film critic thing I could possibly say, which is this is a performance you don't want to miss. Hmm. All right. Um, my all time favorite Delroy Lindo performance will always be a life less ordinary. Sure. He and Holly Hunter play uh, sort of, sexually frustrated angels who are hitmen sort of <laughs> yeah. such a fun movie i love that movie so much i haven't seen uh, it in a long time i need to rewatch it i like it uh, but uh yeah oh and he was in the core i forgot he was in the core and he's in ransom and uh, uh what is it gone in 60 seconds like he's just such a reliable actor and i'm just so excited that he again late in this career got the opportunity to like really like sink his teeth into an amazing part like this Apparently, looking at his filmography, uh, there was a 1996 made-for-TV movie about the Negro League baseball, uh, Negro League baseball called Soul of the Game, and he played Satchel Paige. Oh, 
that sounds really cool. Um, I wonder if that's available anywhere. Uh, I don't have time to look though, because I'm moving on to my next movie, which I loved. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I think you would really like it too. Uh, from 1984, John Huston's Under the Volcano. I haven't. With Albert Finney, I've heard. I've heard I would like it. It's so great. It's uh, like uh, John Huston had uh, earlier in his career made Fat City, which is also a movie about alcoholism. Um, but that one is, uh, just, it's a great movie, but it's unflinchingly bleak, uh, under the volcano, uh, which, which takes place in Cuernavaca, Mexico. Um, and Albert Finney plays a sort of, uh, retired diplomat who is, uh, or he's, who's up until recently a diplomat who quit, uh, his job sort of in favor of just drinking himself to death, (laughs) kind of, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, shades of leaving Las Vegas there. Um, uh, because his uh, his wife uh, is divorcing him. His wife is played by um, uh, Jacqueline Bissett. Um, and uh, the movie just takes place over the course of 24 hours. It, uh, and it's just about Albert Finney just walking around being loquaciously drunk in a small town and it, it ends up getting like uh they go out to the countryside and it's getting kind of sinister and, and dark and scary but he never stops talking <laughs> just talking and talking uh it's so much fun um it's it's beautiful i love movies about drunks as we've talked about before for some yeah. reason um uh and this is one of the great movies about drunk about a drunk uh ever um also it includes because uh, it takes place in the 30s i didn't say that um and the uh, he stops by to get a drink at a little cafe that is attached to a movie theater. And uh, the movie theater is showing mad love with Peter Lorre. Hey, and, and there's a part where the proprietor of the bar slash movie theater is describing the plot of mad love to Albert Finney. <laughs> uh, it's great. Uh, anyway, super great Sounds movie. Great. Really loved it. And I loved it so much that I decided I, I don't talk about, it, I'll talk about a lot of rewatches on here, but I decided to rewatch Miller's crossing, uh, just to, to get some more, uh, Albert Finney. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm, uh, the more that I see of Albert Finney, the more, I love his performance in Miller's Crossing because I, I think when I was younger, cause I saw Miller's Crossing very young. I remember the first time I saw it, it was on TV. I was homesick from school and I was like, just completely sucked into it. Didn't know anything about the Golden brothers or anything at that point. Um, and, but that's not really watching it cause it would have been edited and everything. Um, but I've seen it many, many times, but when I was younger, I obviously was watching it for, uh, Gabriel Burns character. Oh, he's so cool or whatever. And I tended to think of Albert Finney outside of his one sort of like, uh, scene where he gets to show that he's still got it yeah. is mostly like a has been, he's a sap, he's a stooge, yeah. you know, he's completely being played. He's l- largely being played by either Gabriel Byrne, Gabriel Byrne or Marcia Gay Harden's characters at various points in the movie. He can't stand up to Johnny Casper at, yeah. at the beginning. And I think um, the more I see of Albert Finney's power when he uh, on screen, prior to Miller's Crossing, the more I understand what a great performance Miller's Crossing uh, is for, for him, because uh, you do see the strength and um, the intelligence of, uh, of, of the guy and the compassion in a weird way. I mean, he's a, oh, yeah. he's a, he's a killer, but he actually does 
care about Tom and he cares about Vera. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a really great performance and uh, uh, man, what a what an utterly watchable movie <laughs> Miller's Crossing is, and that feels like yeah. low like faint praise, but uh, it's crazy how quickly two hours goes by when you put Miller's Crossing in the Blu-ray player. Yeah, I mean it's obviously it's visually beautiful. I I love the score by Carter Burwell, and I and you know you, talking yeah. about the one of my the favorite pa- scores of all time, I think. Oh, it's uh, like I listen to it regularly uh, on my own. Um, you know, and speaking of like the power of Albert Finney, like it's worth noting that, you know, there like there there is a moment like the very first scene of the film is these two crime bosses, you know, butting heads. And we come to discover later that in that moment, one of them is probably that like Johnny Casper is probably more powerful officially mm-hmm. than Leo. Um, and yet throughout the film, like Casper's constantly flailing. Like he's the kind of guy it's like, well, this guy can't be in charge, not for any length of time. Yeah. As opposed to like this calm, cool demeanor of, mm-hmm. of Leo. And he just seems strong. He just seems yeah. like a leader. He is, he's very much like, you know, going back to the Godfather, you're like, yeah. Oh, Sonny never could have led the the Corleone family not for not for long like he's mm-hmm. just too volatile it does take you know if you're going to be successful it takes somebody who's able to compartmentalize their feelings and even seem compassionate like a Vito Corleone or maybe even a little bit uh, like Michael and uh, yeah I mean it's it's a supporting character but I mean he just he is he just looms over that whole film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh and if you're if you're looking for uh if you're looking to get your your finny fix okay. uh then uh, i still uh highly recommend the dresser i think okay. you'd like the dresser quite a bit which also features a great performance by uh tom Courtney. Ooh. all right uh is it my turn or yours yeah your, your turn okay uh this is a rewatch and uh i'm gonna go back to it's a film that i love and i know you love it too every sane adult should uh and it is yon Debon's speed oh yeah and, you know, the, the reason that I wanted to bring it up is, is because of what I said about Gladiator, what I said about Peter Pan. Man, like, I look at speed and I look at the way that it is made and specifically the way that it's structured. And I am just astonished at its patience. Like, the premise of speed is so strong, the amount of restraint required on the part of the writers, the producers and the director to not just get to that bus. Uh-huh. That elevator sequence takes a long time mm-hmm. and you're like right there. And it, it establishes Hopper's character, the relationship between uh, Jeff Daniels and Keanu Reeves. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Sandra Bullock is a, is a main character and she doesn't show up for 30 minutes. Um, and it's big, and I do feel like if speed, if this movie were made today, they would rush through that scene if they wanted to incorporate it at all. Uh, whereas here, it's a fully realized uh, sequence. And I just, uh, you know, I, I don't think I actually watch a lot of uh, action movies these days. Uh, now that I think about it, but uh, and I don't begrudge somebody wanting to just get to the primary story. But to me, like laying the groundwork as far as character, as far as tone, as far as uh, general vibe. And in this case, the idea of 
the look, you know, that I think we mentioned, mentioned this in the, in the, in our commentary for speed, but like that sequence with the elevator, uh, the camera work is very vertical. Um, there's a lot of upward and downward angles, but then when we move to the bus that you don't see that anymore. And it's because like, yeah, with an elevator, everything is vertical. Yeah. The, the danger is in falling. Uh, whereas with the bus, that's not, that's not the case anymore. And so I just really appreciate, and of course, Jan de Bont was a former cinematographer. cinematographer yeah. Um, and so I just really, I love speed all around. Uh, I think it's a great movie, but in watching it, I think the fact that I had watched gladiator and then watched speed, I was like, yeah, I just feel like movies don't have this level of restraint anymore. And it's weird to describe speed as having restraint, but from well, a narrative standpoint, it's patience is something that I really came to appreciate. Well, I hadn't intended to bring up the recent, uh, Joss Whedon stuff. I don't know if you've, uh, been following, uh, this. No, I mean, I know that he, he, uh, wrote some stuff for speed. But I mean, the, the, the Ray Fisher, who played Cyborg in Justice League, sure. has, without any, saying anything specific so far, uh, has said that um, Joss Whedon's conduct on the set of Justice League was uh, unprofessional and uh, uh, hmm. abusive. Um, Interesting. Uh, which we also knew uh, there was a few years ago where his ex-wife had come uh, with a lot of his behavior that he was... Uh, a, a very bad husband um, right. in a lot of ways. So we're, we're learning uh, more about Jess Whedon. So I feel bad uh, saying good things about him, but, um, uh, but yeah, uh, the thing you were bad, talking bad about, people can still be tremendously talented. Like and that's a good thing know. to recognize too, yeah. is that, that, that don't like, don't think that just because you like someone's art that they're uh, yeah. uh, uh, free um, of guilt. Um but uh, yeah, there's a classic Joss Whedon quote that I can't remember the exact wording, uh, but about the, pa you know, you're talking about patience, whatever, um, uh, as opposed to just rushing to the thing. Uh, he has a quote where something about, about, about uh, writing for movies and TV, that the writer's job is not to give the audience what they want, but what they need. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, I, I don't know how much of the pacing is Joss Whedon. I know a lot of the, a lot of the dialogue is Joss Whedon. The movie's officially credited to Graham um, Yost. Graham Yost, um, but uh, uh, if you if you once you've watched enough Joss Whedon, you can really pick up on the Joss Whedon. Oh, absolutely! Uh, in the in the dialogue. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, was that it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So next up for me, uh, another rewatch, and just because I uh, wanted to, I didn't have to ha have a good reason, but. Uh, um speed you know hey speed's a good los angeles movie mm -hmm. one of my favorite los angeles movies is repo man and i watch repo man uh again and that movie it's funny i think about when i think about it i think about how like cool and kind of off kilter it, it is it's like a punk rock movie you know you've got harry dean stanton uh looking at the <laughs> the guys in t their tennis outfits getting their car towed and just going ordinary fucking people. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> and, but there's, there's that kind of stuff. And, and so I think of when I, I often, I, 
I think of Repo Man as being like a cult movie. That's a comedy in this, in the sense that it's like bizarre and sardonic, yeah. but then you watch it and realize like, Oh no, it's just straightforward, like a comedy. And it's super funny. There's uh when the agents, the, the like secret agents break into the repo office. Uh, and the, I can't remember her name, the receptionist, she's got the one down on the floor and she's about to hit him with a chair and he goes, not my face and then like somebody else walks in the door and it cuts to a different view and so she brings the chair down and you don't see it and the guy goes my face (laughs) (laughs) um uh and uh emilio estevez i think is an actor that i um don't give enough credit to uh also a guy who mostly just stopped acting outside of his own uh movies and even then he's not uh always in the movies he directs either is he i don't know i haven't seen that many i don't but, um uh, i'm because i think i i saw what's it called bobby and i okay. don't remember i don't recall him being in it but he okay. might have been in a, in a um, smaller role i mean everyone's in bobby i didn't uh, I, I didn't even see it uh but uh, i think i'm the it's only fine. person who's not in that movie um uh he's he's hilarious and he's got i mean his first like uh Right, his first job, his first line, line in the movie is that his coworkers like just talking his ear off about something, and then his boss comes to like uh, uh, chew him out for something, and he just keeps going pricing the the cans or whatever, and then the boss goes, "But are you even listening to me?" And he just turns and goes, "Fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> And there's so many great lines uh, like that when he, at the end, when he decided to get in the car and the, the, his love interest is like, uh, but what about our relationship? What? Our relationship. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets in the car with uh, Tracy. uh, What's the actor's name? Tracy Walters. Walter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Who has a great uh, story about uh, John Wayne being gay. He doesn't use the word gay. uh, Sure. uh, it's a very funny, uh, very funny story. Very funny movie. Uh, I love Reefle Man. Uh, yeah, five stars across the board. Uh, and then I watched one of two. Well, we'll come back to my other one too. Fifties uh, film noirs, films noir. Sorry. Um, and that's uh, City That Never Sleeps, um, directed by John H. Hour, nineteen fifty-three. Uh, when you hear City That Never Sleeps, what city do you think of? New York. Yeah. That's what that usually is said about, but this is a Chicago movie. Um, and, uh, it's, um, weirdly, uh, narrated by the city of Chicago. Just the, just the opening and the closing have like the city talking about its citizens. Oh, that's cool. Um, (laughs) it's, it is cool. The movie itself is, is uh, it in a Chicago accent? Because I feel like that, that might would be. No, it's not. Yeah. That would be very funny. Let um, me tell you about uh, my citizens. Uh, the movie is. Uh, it's. Uh, it has some like clever plotting where there's a whole thing uh, based on. There's a a club that has like a an actor employed as like a mechanical man in the window to like draw, mm. uh, and so he ends up being a witness to a crime because the person who committed the crime doesn't realize it's a real person. Um, So there's like some clever things like that, but uh, I couldn't get over the fact that the movie is, uh, I don't know if you've heard this term that's been used a lot in the past month or so since the, the, the uh, uh, George Floyd uh, uh, protests and stuff, but the term copaganda. uh, No, I have not, but uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. I I think I got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, and this is something that often happens at the time. Uh, time uh, you've got movies like um, uh, 
down three dark streets, which was made in, uh, like in cooperation with the FBI trapped, which was made in cooperation sure. with the, uh, um, treasury department spot counterfeiters. City never sleeps is literally like brought to you by the Chicago PD. Uh, so it's literal Ugh. propaganda. Uh, yeah. So and that uh, police department is pretty <laughs> rough. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I couldn't, quite get that part of it uh out of my mind and and uh of the movies that i just named that are made in this cooperative way none of them are that good so uh mm. uh this is par for the course um uh yeah city that never sleeps uh sorry it couldn't sorry it couldn't be better uh all right i think you're up next uh what did you talk about right before? Oh, Repo Man. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is a film. Uh, oh, oh, yes. The voice of Chicago is Chill Wills. Do you know that name? That sounds familiar. Yeah. Chill Wills. Maybe I'm thinking of Chilly Willy. <laughs> Let's see here. Chill Wills. He's in the Alamo. Okay. Oh, he's in. Uh, yes. Okay. Got it. Got Giant? it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's in Meet Me in St. Louis. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. And I, I, now that I see him, I, I remember him. Um, okay. Sorry. Uh, okay. So I saw Moana, which I'd not oh. seen, which I've never seen before. Oh, really? I love Moana. Yeah. I'm, I'll tell you right off the bat. I love it. I wouldn't, I'm not sure if I'd say I love it, but I sure do like it. Um, and it's because, I mean, obviously the, like from a, from a narrative standpoint, it's not necessarily uh, blazing a trail or anything like that. Um, but I, it's gorgeous. I think it's visually gorgeous. Um, I think the, the, the look of it, um, as far as the water, as far as lava, like just the way it, it animates the elements, I think, uh, uh really, gives you a sense of of place and it makes sense given uh who these characters are and the stuff that they believe the idea that the uh, that the elements have uh, a personality and so it makes sense that you don't want to skimp on how good they're going to look um and i really appreciated the the characters themselves i like the character of maui um voiced by dwayne johnson and the the nature of his of his type of, of pride and that it's, and, and his genuine accomplishment that he, that, but that it's uh, rooted in insecurity and a desire for love and that sort of thing. So uh, there's a lot that I really do uh, love about it. I think the music is really good. I really enjoy those songs. Is it Lin-Manuel Miranda co-wrote them? I believe I I was going to say that was going to be my thing was that it might be the best Disney musical of the 21st century in terms of songs like, Dude, like i like i like the music from uh the princess and the frog quite a bit um, oh and i've never uh I've, I've never seen that one so maybe i should watch that uh certainly before the next time i go to disneyland where there's gonna be a princess and the frog indeed uh, i'm i know so I, i've look splash mountain's a lot of fun um mm-hmm. but uh i don't know i'm excited about the change you know it's it's interesting um because i actually well it's it's interesting to me that I guess I recognize that Disneyland has, has always tried to have a sense of its own, uh, of its own history, but it always seemed odd to me because Splash Mountain was built in what the late eighties. Right. Yeah. It's just like, well, it's not like song of the South was like 
big on people weren't talking about it even at the time they were saying what they were saying was like negative things outside of like the Brer rabbit character um so it just seemed like an odd theming anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, of, and of course, uh, there are people, there are like Disneyland purists who are like, no, you should never change anything. Um, and to me, I feel like, you know, if, if you had Uncle Remus throughout the ride talking about like, <laughs> things are pretty great around here. Yeah, okay, well, that, that wouldn't be great. But um, yeah, for people who don't, maybe who haven't ridden Splash Mountain, there's none of that. It's just the Brer yeah, Rabbit story. It's just Brer uh, Rabbit story. And I, I think it works pretty well along those lines. But I, I've never seen Song as, of the South. Like I said, I've always liked the the ride yeah. but i'm sure i'll like the princess and the frog ride too it's think, still gonna be a log flume which is that's what's fun about it to me it's well it's i i enjoy the an, the animatronic and it's, all that and, and i'm sure and it's I gonna have it's, that too i think it's a really good and in the case of disneyland itself it's right by new orleans square um i mean it's not i guess it's oh yeah it's one it's like one section over it's in critter country officially but yeah i do think like oh that is smart like that is the way to retheme that movie because you do have like swamps you have uh like alligators and various uh, animals so i think it could work really well um but anyway so i really like the music for moana i think maybe my favorite sequence of the film is the one with uh uh tamatoa the giant crab voiced by mm-hmm. jermaine clement i like yeah. his song shiny, i like right? shiny yeah. yeah um and i like that his character is is funny but and this is something jermaine clement like when i've seen i've seen him used in in certain ways in like uh what was it i think like men in black three uh, and I feel like other things like he has the kind of voice that can be funny and yet somehow menacing at the same time. And I think they use him very well all around. I think the movie is very, very good uh, and visually gorgeous. And, uh, and I'm very glad that I, that I saw it. All right. <clears throat> uh, next up for me, my other fifties um, noir is uh 1953's uh also 53 uh 99 river street um this is directed by phil carlson who made uh he directed kansas city confidential which came up on the most recent uh podcast episode and it stars uh john payne who is also in kansas city confidential um uh this one's definitely better than city by the sea it's not perfect but uh basically um John Payne plays a down in his luck former boxer turned cab driver uh, who um, his his uh, I'm trying to figure out how much of it I should spoil. Uh, his wife is cheating on him with a gangster, and then I'll go ahead and say the gangster kills his wife and tries to frame him for the murder, mm. and so he spends um, the 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 second half of the movie trying to clear his name and, and get back at these, these, uh, gangsters. He ends up, it's got a fun plot cause he ends up like teaming up with other gangsters who are also like, you know, it's a sort of, a uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend type of sure. thing. Um, uh, and then he's got his, uh, uh, the actress Evelyn keys. I don't know that much, uh, about her, but she plays, uh, uh, a struggling sort of stage actress who is, who has a thing for, uh, John Payne's character and ends up helping him out by doing, you know, doing some acting. Uh, <laughs> oh, now I just want to watch that again. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not that, uh, 
it's not that far above average, but I think it does have um, a couple of we've we've talked before about how like sometimes action or fights in movies don't age well. They seem like uh, the Manchurian Candidate is always the one that I go to. There's like sure. uh, he's like. You got Frank yeah. Sinatra, like judo, Sinatra, like judo yeah. shopping the people, and it looks really like slow and clumsy. But you've got like a boxing scene at the beginning, and then a scene where he uses his boxing skills on uh, on, on another gangster uh, that actually like look like like I'm actually watching it, going, "Ooh, that looks like it hurts." Like it's, yeah. like, it's actually a couple of good uh, uh, fist fight scenes. But um, and Evelyn Keys is great as the. Uh, as the kind of like flighty but devoted actress uh and then couldn't be more different so next up is actually nine movies but they're short films that i okay. watched and they're all by the same filmmaker um i won't even bother to name all of them but her name is uh ariana gerstein and uh all of her stuff is uh free to watch on vimeo and um uh you can you know, uh, if you have a, the Vimeo channel on your Roku or whatever device, you can watch it on your TV. So, mm. uh, um, so I watched uh, nine short films by Aaron McGerstein, and these are so up my up my alley. They're uh, the way she makes films is um, mostly, I guess you'd call it like stop motion animation. But she's not Ooh. actually animating things. She's like taking pictures. So she'll like interview someone and then like just take pictures of them talking and then so you'll see the person like talking but their movements are only happening every like hmm. five seconds or so or, or something you know um but then there's also lots of other uh visual effects that she does mostly the same way with sort of um it's a blend of like like actual like uh what's what i'm looking for um uh when you what is it Oh my God! Why am I drawing a blank on the word? Like, uh, like not scrapbooking, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. When you make a uh, a picture like a, of a lot a of collage, people. collage, yes, collage is the word I was looking for. So it's uh, like there's actual collage work where she's you know taking various pictures and cutting them out and putting them together and then scanning them uh, uh, so that they move uh with and around each other uh, there's terrific sound design the sound design especially is what really uh uh wrote me and it reminded me very much of um uh, it's also all black and white or actually no there's one that wasn't but um it reminded me of episode eight of twin peaks the return um i don't know if you Which, watched all of that no but i but, uh, like i think i watched four episodes okay. and then everyone said like you gotta get to eight and i never did Oh yeah, well, eight is just a like a complete depart. Not that the not that the Twin Peaks season three is that concerned with uh, right. narrative continuity to begin with, but episode eight is just a, a essentially like a standalone experimental hour long film. And uh, Aaron Gerstein's films made me think of that in the way in their look, not in the style that she you know uh, uh, makes films with, but the way they sound and the way they look, the way they feel to me. Uh, there's a sort of alluring. Uh, gothic bleakness to them uh, that I, I couldn't get enough of I, I will absolutely watch some of these films uh, again all right you're up next all right uh this is the film that i chose to watch instead of most dangerous game uh and it is william cameron menzies things to come from 1936 okay. um have you seen it no all right so it's it's uh 
adapted or inspired by uh, some of the writing of uh, H.G. Wells. And on one hand, I really liked it. On the other hand, it's, it's hard. I found it hard to embrace um, because it is so of its time in a way that you're just like, Oh boy, this like, not that it's necessarily offensive, but it's the kind of thing where, um, during the, the film, like there, the, there's a a city called every town, uh, in, in England. And there is a war that is brewing with somebody. And then, uh, that somebody attacks, uh, England and attacks every town. And this war turns into a 30 year affair. Um, and so you have characters. So, and at the end of that, uh, there is a sickness called the wandering sickness, uh, where a person essentially just turns in, it turns people into zombies. They don't attack people, but if you, if you, if they, touch you uh or even breathe on you then like you essentially just go brain dead and just walk around and so the ralph richardson plays a, just a like a low level military guy who decides like okay i know how to deal with the wandering sickness let's just shoot everyone that has it problem solved uh and sure enough uh he did solve the problem enough to we jump ahead in time and now he's the leader of every town the war is officially over but uh and and everything has just been decimated but now he wants to but now there's a smaller war with uh, the hill people because they're the ones that have access to uh resources that could allow planes to fly and all that sort of thing uh but then Raymond, Ma- uh, Raymond Massey, who we saw at the beginning of the film, he is a scientist and he shows up in a crazy flying machine and he's in a spacesuit and he is from a, a, another civilization that is built, that is based on rationality, based on reason and science as opposed to war. And so he essentially says, hey, if you guys... It's like we, we no longer are interested in like independent sovereign states. We are part of one large society where all of our resources are, are, uh, are devoted to the idea of progress. And so, of course, Ralph Richardson is not thrilled with that because he likes his nice sovereign state because he's in charge of it. Uh, at which point, uh, Ralph, uh, sorry, um, Raymond Massey and his and his people like take over and then we cut ahead like 50 years and we see this really advanced world but there are some people that are really uh are still resistant to that because now we want to go into space and people aren't in favor of that so it it very much is it's kind of an allegory in some ways about the the way humans are and the way they should be and that you know science and rationality like those are the things that will save us and you know, I, I'm not in fa- I'm not opposed to rationality and I'm not opposed to science, but this is a film that came out in 1936. And it's one of those things where I, it feels almost naive. It definitely feels like a hopeful film, like trying to uh, espouse a certain worldview of maybe this is what we should all strive for, which I think is perfectly fine. But at the same time, like when you see the like, oh yes, science, absolutely not long after this science was used to create the nuclear bomb, you know, like it's, it's the kind of thing where you watch it and you know, in, in the world, what would come. And it just feels like it just seems kind of outdated in that, in that regard where it's like, Hey, I appreciate what you're trying to say, 
but at the same time, I think you're, I, I think you're not taking, and maybe I just have a low view of humanity, but I think you're just not taking human nature into account. And like, there's this marvelous moment where, uh, <laughs> oh boy, I can't think of a more Orwellian concept than this, where the, the civilized people, they have, uh, uh, the gas of peace is what it's called where they just gas uh, like the Ralph Richardson society and like essentially knocks them all out. And so like that enables them to, to win. And so that, but then they discover that like Ralph Richardson has died from the gal, the gas spoilers from the gas of peace. And someone's like, Oh, he's dead. And Raymond Massey's like, yes. And with him, uh, his backward society. I'm like, okay. So you don't give a shit that you killed this guy. Like you, your goal was not to kill people and then once you did you immediately start spinning it uh in this positive way and so it's just a film that i feel like uh almost in the same way that you were talking about uh, meet john doe that like it's so rooted in it's so trying to put this idea out there that i think I think both at the at the time and i think in retrospect i could see it being seen as just like this is this is a really nice thing to aspire to but even then i don't think it actually works out based on how people are but it's an interesting film and visually it's really interesting it's got that fun retro future kind of thing that i really appreciate uh all right next up you know so often i watch documentaries like uh hale county this morning this evening or another one that's coming up uh, you know, looking for cinema that uh, it feels weird to just watch a documentary because I wanted to know about the subject, mm-hmm. but uh, I watched um, William E. Badgley's 2017 here to be heard the story of the slits, which is a documentary about a very short lived uh, punk band, um, all female punk band uh, from the seventies. Who then they put out two albums in the, in the late seventies uh, or maybe the second album was 1980. I can't remember exactly. Um, and then uh, reunited in the late uh, 2000s. Um, and uh, it's just, a you know, I, uh, they're an interesting band because uh, there weren't like all girl punk bands that early on. Uh, they were like kind of the first uh, all female punk band. And I say all girl because most of them were actually um, uh, not, uh, not adult, like under 18. Um, and, uh, they made some good music and then the, so they're mostly forgotten because they didn't last very long. They only made two records and the second record isn't even really a punk record. It's kind of like uh reggae ish. Um, uh, it's a, they're a really interesting uh, band and there's a good story behind them. And the movie does a decent job of translating that story. So if you are interested in the slits, it's on Amazon prime. All right. All right. And then next up, I watched the movie that I'd said on, I think, I think I said this on a re- recent Patreon. Yes. A recent Patreon, um, uh, a movie that I've been putting off watching and certain things about, uh, about the movie, about its stars, about the production company, about what's going on in the world. Um, kept, kept me pushing it off. And then, more shit came up about Mel Gibson and I decided, you know what? I'm never going to have an excuse. Fuck it. I'm just going to watch dragged across concrete and then I'm going to make, <laughs> and then make donations to offset. So I made donations to like the anti-defamation league and the rape sure. and abuse incest, uh, rape abuse and incest survivors network, I think is what it's called. Uh, 
uh, to sort of offset. That's just been my thing since since Wonder Wheel. I think was the first time that I did that, where I was sure. like, I want to see this movie. I understand the reasons why you shouldn't. I will feel better about myself if I offset it with a don- donation to a cause. Uh, so I made a couple of donations to 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 cover the various things about Drag to Cross Concrete Concre- that are, are are problematic. Uh, and then I didn't even end up liking the movie, which I kind of knew I wouldn't because I don't. I haven't seen Bone Tomahawk. But I did not like Brawl and Cell Block ninety nine. Right. I don't think Craig Zoller is my thing. I I I think there's something to I understand some of the appeal of um making movies that on based on log lines are schlocky uh, uh B movies and then making them with uh, turning them into like slow cinema, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and making, you know, I mean, Drive to Cross Concrete is a, it's a buddy cop thriller essentially, except it's two hours and 45 minutes long and moves at a snail's pace. Um, but that's not even really my yeah. problem uh, uh, with it. I, I understand what's uh, appealing about, about that. And there are, there are things formally, there are things about Craig Zeller that I really like. I, uh, I don't like a lot of his dialogue, um, except when he's having uh, just fun. Uh, our friend of the show, Fred Melamed, shows up as a bank manager uh, who's uh, kind of like a, a loquacious, highfalutin type of uh, you know an academic uh, who speaks in in in, in poetry, uh, and he just has a great like scene uh, of this flowery language that I'm like I I love I love that, but it's just one he's just in that one scene. Um, uh, but mostly it's just like uh just bullshit uh uh t- like ominousness toughness and also he's doing things that like kind of like the the painted bird which still hasn't come out but uh they go so far in trying to be upsetting that they almost become self-parody mm. so like there's a there's a character who gets a very uh, 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 he takes a lot of time setting up a very Im- emotional and sympathetic backstory only for this character to be brutally murdered so that we know like how uh, how much not only is it sad that that she's dead but we know what her life is and what she's leaving right. behind and and how tragic that is and, but it it goes so far in doing it that you see it coming a mile away and then when sure. it happens it's almost darkly comic in a yeah. way she um, might as well talk about how far she is from retirement yeah exactly um and then there's but then there's stuff that because i've seen the movie being like oh this is a movie that asks for you to have sympathy for racist cops because the premise is that um i don't know if you know the story of the movie mel gibson and vince vaughn play uh cops who get caught on video uh using excessive force on hmm. uh, a suspect of, of color and get suspended um and uh suspended without pay and so they uh team up to sort of steal some money from a criminal to to make up for the uh pay they're not getting um and so that criticism of it being like sympathetic towards these racist cops is like that's not wrong that's definitely what's going on sure. but that's also just the first level of what's going on yeah. i think i think the movie does have some more to say about men like mel gibson and men like the 
character that Mel Gibson is playing and that Vince Vaughn is playing, but really Mel Gibson is the, the main cop. And um, because when I'm, what I'm sort of dancing around because uh, uh, I almost want people to discover this for themselves, but I also don't really want to recommend the movie um, is that by the end, Mel Gibson's character is not actually the protagonist of the movie. Like it ends up being about a different character that we're introduced to first. The first character we meet in the movie is a guy who's just gotten out of prison um, who ends up getting a job driving the getaway van for the bank robbers. And then he's gone for a long part of the movie. And it's not until the second or like really the third, uh, the, the third hour of the movie, <laughs> you know, movie that he comes back and you, and you realize like how, Oh, this is kind of his story. Mm. Um, and so I think the movie is more about an idea of, um, uh, I, I think maybe there is some sympathy towards old racists like Mel Gibson, but also an acknowledgement that they are just going to have to die off because they won't change. Um, And so I think you could make an argument that the movie has a more um, uh, nuanced uh, view, but I also don't think it's worth it. (laughs) It's it's not worth watching. It's not fun to watch. Unless, I mean, some people like, the the brutality of Craig Zoller's uh, movies, but um, uh, I, I have a tough time watching. Uh, just just uh, people people die in such awful ways in his movies, and you haven't even gotten to Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't know if I will at this point. And that, and that's what's interesting is that like because I love bone tomahawk and i and like the stuff that you're talking about which is like really slowing things down is like well that works for a western mm. you know mm. i mean that's certainly in that tradition and kind of a certain type of of highfalutin dialogue for certain characters uh works really well for for a western and and then it's also sort of a western horror and the the violence is truly horrific and something that we that we don't really revel in, uh, but it's still there. Uh, I mean, I would I would recommend watching Bone Tomahawk, but at the same time, maybe uh, take a while before you watch it. Um, so, what was it? it? Dragged across concrete, and then what's the other one? Riot, brawl and cell, uh, brawl and cell block ninety nine. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I haven't seen either of those, and so I'm I'm interested to watch them. One thing I do know is that not unlike our friend Martin McDonough, uh, I believe uh, Craig Zoller, I don't know if he just writes one draft all the time. I know, okay. that, I know that Bone Tomahawk was one draft and it worked, in my opinion, really well, uh, but I don't know if that's kind of how he works in general. But again, like Martin McDonough, sometimes you get a fluke and you get a really good script. Other times it's like, Oh, now it's self-indulgent and you didn't talk to anybody and you didn't give it another look and now you're just making it. And yeah, usually movies that are over long, like, or sorry, usually uh, scripts that are like one draft are very long because the person just put everything out there and it never occurred to them. It's like, Hey, maybe that didn't belong. Maybe give it another pass. Uh, I also think not liking this one or brawl and so like 99 i don't think i am going to buy vince vaughn as a tough guy like that's Hmm. i think that's maybe part of it is that craig zeller sees something in vince vaughn that i just can't for some reason 
because Vince Vaughn has been like in his small role in fighting with my family, he's really good. I think, mm -hmm. and I think there's certain types of characters that, uh, he's very, he's very good at, but I don't buy him as a tough guy. I think he can be a tough guy in a certain, in a very specific type of role. Like I admittedly, I never saw, uh, be cool, but I could see him being a, an Elmore Leonard tough guy. Okay. okay. Um, and then I, I saw, uh, the second season of, um, true detective. And even though his performance, like he just is like, Oh, I'm playing a tough dramatic character. So I'm going to like really downplay my charisma. Uh, so like, that's not a good call. You, yeah. you should not have done that. Um, but he still, he still emerges in some scenes is like, yes, now we're talking like there are times when he does it really well. And he is, to me, like he's a good tough guy, but he's never like a like a top tier tough guy. He's always like a sort of a a, a hood who did kind of okay uh, for himself after a while. I could see him being that type of tough guy. But if you put him alongside somebody like Mel Gibson who has that kind of weathered look to him and all that, it's like yeah, he's not going to be as tough as the other guy. But anyway, um, okay, uh, it's me, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is a rewatch. Uh, a film that you famously refuse to see, which is Mad Max Fury yeah. Road. Uh, I, I've seen the film a few times and um, I was watching and Jen has watched it with me before, but uh, she, uh, she was knitting. She's gotten into knitting. So she was knitting while we, while we were watching it uh, this time around. And she said something that really struck me is she was, so she wasn't watching. She was only listening, which is fascinating for a movie like this because mm -hmm. like it is very loud mm -hmm. and a lot of clanking. Um, but there came a moment when she like put down her knitting and was just watching. And she goes, did we, she's like, did you start from the beginning or did you just jump in? I was like, Nope, started from the beginning <laughs> hard. I, like I can understand why you, if you're not paying full attention, I can understand why you might think that because the movie jumps right in and obviously like from an editing standpoint from a sound design like everything technical about the film is marvelous but from a structure standpoint there's just something there's something so uncompromising about the way george miller made this movie and i say that knowing that he did make a compromise because he wanted to make it in black and white but the studio said no we want it in color so it's like all right go fuck yourself here's the color you're getting it's uh not pleasant um and so uh but from a from a story standpoint, he just throws you in the middle of it. And as he did in previous movies, but I think even more so this one, the character of Max is mostly an observer uh, to all of this other stuff going on. He's maybe the least dynamic character. He's still interesting, obviously, but he's maybe the least dynamic character that we see. And so just like so many things, not just about action movies, but also about just films in general that we just accept that our main character needs to be someone that we are right there with and uh, needs to be well-defined enough that we get a sense of who they are. Um, and that we do need to, you know, I, on with speed, I was like, Oh, I appreciate them taking the time to set it up. But with Mad Max, he not only throws us right in the middle of everything, he does it in a way that just like, that I appreciate because it's, it doesn't come from a place of, ah, eh, let's just trim the fat and get into the main story. It's more just like, yeah, in this world, there is no, you don't get to take time for yourself. You either start moving or you die. Uh, that's just how this works. And so like in this case, the, the one could say lack of patience or just the, the willingness to jump right in 
is a function of the world that he's created and the characters that he's created. And it's just such a lived in, albeit horrifying world um, that I, you know, you don't really want to be a part of it, but it's also so invigorating the way he makes the movie that uh, I was really happy that I, that I rewatched it. It's probably, I think it's my third time watching it since it came out. And, uh, and I just have more respect for it every time as far as the choices that he made and respect for the Academy, by the way, that this film was nominated for as many Oscars as it was, because it didn't make a great deal of money. uh, And it's, 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 it could be seen as aggressively unpleasant. Uh, and so for the Academy to nominate it for as many things as it did, I think is, is pretty notable. Uh, all right. I watched the movie. Uh, uh, I, 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 weirdly, I was less offended by it, but I liked it even less than Dragged Across Concrete. And that's okay. J.C. Shandor's Triple Frontier. Um, I know you're a J.C. Shandor fan, right? Um, uh, I've only seen uh, Margin Call. And, you saw Most Violent Year. Right? And Most Violent Year. Okay. Like, I've, I didn't I've see only all seen Lost. All Is Lost and Most Violent Year. I've never seen right. Margin Call. But I like both those, both those movies. And I think he does have some... He tends to have some thoughts about... Uh, masculinity uh, that are about the the sort of uh, usefulness and the hindrance of of, sure. of of certain forms of masculinity and that's kind of what i was hoping triple frontier is and i think if you squint you can kind of see it but really it's just a bland action thriller like yeah. somber bland action thriller uh that has character it's five characters all play like it's uh ben affleck oscar isaac pedro pascal uh, Garrett Hedlund and Charlie Hunnam, like good cast people I yeah. like, but I don't, there's no way into any of the characters. I don't care about them. Uh, yeah. They play sort of ex special forces forces who um, uh, Oscar as a character is now working with the uh, federal police in an unnamed Latin American country. And he uh, basically hires his old army buddies to come down and help him get a drug dealer and, Hey, if there's some money in the house, maybe the uh, the the um, the federalities will look the other way if we leave with a few million dollars. So it's a, uh, a and I don't. I just the thing is, I just don't care about any of them, um, and I don't care if they get the money. I don't care if they survive the movie. I just spent two hours bored out of my mind uh by this movie uh yeah. i mean i guess there's an okay like truck chase near the end but it's a little, too little too late there uh that remind it's interesting yeah when i saw the the trailer for it, i was like this does not look that interesting to me and similarly there's that movie that showed up on netflix uh, extraction starring uh chris, okay, hemsworth. chris hemsworth yeah and a lot of people were watching it and when i saw that trailer i'm just like this looks like the most generic thing. Why on earth would I watch this? Uh, I'm sure that maybe the action is good, but I'm not, I just, I don't, I don't care. Which leads me to think that I should force myself to watch it uh, because sometimes it's that generic stuff that can, that can actually surprise you. Uh, but it sounds like uh, triple frontier did not. Uh, no. Yeah. Um, uh, extraction is at the very, I don't know if this is in its favor, but at the very least it is supposed to be, uh, remarkably violent. 
Well, that's something. <laughs> so at least that's something that, that's more personality than Triple Frontier has. Uh, but then next up, I watched the movie, another movie that uh, this is a film movement classics uh, restoration that uh, is in virtual cinemas. Uh, and, um, a Zhang Yimou film that I had not yet seen, and that's 1995's Shanghai Triad. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember. We, we did a, an episode on Zhang Yimou a million years ago. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. Did you watch Shanghai Triad? I did that? not. Um, it's the. It was the final. He made six movies in a row with Gong Li. Uh, this is the final of those six, and they have since reunited a couple of times. But they, he literally made six movies without taking a break with the same uh, actress. And uh, this movie makes me mourn that they didn't keep making movies uh, together. She plays so the the two leads. Uh, if you know what a triad is, it's a uh, it's like a mafia, but it's you know uh, Chinese, I guess. Um, uh, and so there are two main characters: is a boy who has just been hired as a uh, servant to a gangster's mistress and that mistress is played by gong lee so it's a movie that's about a gangster and lee uh lee Baotian, i think i'm not sure how you say his name um uh plays the gangster um but most of the sort of gangland stuff happens off screen like they live in this lavish house in 1930s shanghai and then there's an attempt on his life so he relocates to like a remote island to sort of regroup and plan his revenge and so a lot of the movie uh is just this kid and this woman with nothing else to do uh hanging out on this island and talking to like the there's only one other family that lives there who are uh serving as like uh, the hosts for this gangster and his, uh, his posse. Um, and so it's a very, like very languid movie, very, very beautiful, which is, um, not surprising for Zhang Yimou. Most of his movies, uh, are very lush. That's kind of a yeah. calling card, uh, for him, but, uh, it's, it's entrancing and I, uh, I loved it, uh, so much. It's, it's moved up to, uh, the upper tier for me of Zhang Yimou, uh, movies up with raised red lantern and uh judo um uh above the great wall if you can imagine uh, oh man <laughs> uh all right so that's shanghai triad uh what's next for you all right speaking of entrancing david this is the first time i've seen this movie it is disney's fantasia um which i had never seen before and uh everything okay over there uh, yeah, yeah. You can keep going. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I knew what it was. I, I had seen, you know, sequences from the film, uh, but in watching it all, uh, all together, I'm just astonished that it got made. Uh, I imagine that Walt Disney had to, I mean, I know that he was the head of his own company, but I feel like a lot of people probably said, don't make this. It is not story based. Mm -hmm. There is no sound aside from the music and the guy, you know, the character who occasionally like introduces the sequences. Uh, but there is no dialogue. There is no sound. It is pure music and image. And I love it. Like I, it is such, it is so ambitious and so beautiful. And in some cases it's, you know, sometimes they create, they sort of create a little story out of it. And other times it's just, Hey, here's some, here's some shapes uh, that go mm -hmm. with the music and these shapes, they felt right to us, the animators and the directors. 
and it's it is just uh you know i i don't use the word pure cinema very often but that's that's what this is because it's just it's just images and and music and that's all and it is I don't know. It just pulled me in and it held me. And I was so excited every step of the way. Um, the one thing that I think could be a bit of a detriment is not actually the, the film's fault. It's more just kind of this other aspect, which is, you know, once it opens back up, Jen and I will probably be going to the Hollywood bowl. We like to go and, and listen to classical music and that sort of thing. And some of these images are so indelible in Fantasia that I feel like, well, now you can't help. Like if you hear a certain piece of music that happens to be in Fantasia, you're going to start thinking of those images. Like now you can't, that's the problem with when you see someone who says, Oh, well, this is what I imagine when I hear this music and I'm now going to show you, it's like, well, now that's kind of locked in. And so I do worry that if I hear something by Stravinsky or something like that, that, uh, that I'm just going to think of Fantasia. And while that's not a bad thing, it's just like, well, I don't necessarily want to think at all times of like a dancing hippo or something like that uh, <laughs> with certain musical pieces. But, but that is, that's, that's a larger, uh, not even detriment, but that's just sort of a larger side effect of what Fantasia is. Um, and I, I'm just so, I wish more, I wish more studios did stuff like this. And certainly, you know, Disney's not going to do anything like this uh, ever again. I know they did Fantasia 2000, but they're just capitalizing on first right. off like computer graphics. And then also this thing that was beloved. Like I can't imagine them doing anything like this now because everything is so story driven, which is understandable, but I, it's just such a, it's a celebration. It's a celebration of art, of music and, and just bringing these things together. And I, boy, I just, I, I really adored it. All right. Um, next up was the, the first in all of these movies that my wife has been showing me the movies that she liked when she was either a kid or a teenager or whatever. Um, she's had a really good track record, uh, but there, you know, it had to end sometime. <laughs> sure. There's a movie from 1999 that I'd heard of and remember wanting to see at the time. Uh, and that's Jawbreaker. Um, mm. starring Rose McGowan and uh, Julie Benz and uh, um, uh, Rebecca Gayhart and Judy Greer. Um, and uh, did you see it? I did not. Yeah, you're, you're okay. Just watch Heathers. This okay. movie like wants to be Heathers so bad, but all, all it knows how to do is just amp up the meanness. It's, it's an, unrelentingly mean-spirited movie hmm. um and the uh, rose mcgowan's character is so overwritten they're trying clearly trying to do that like that that heather's type thing of 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 inventing a sort of high school lexicon um uh but it doesn't work uh, the movie's gross uh dark for no reason cynical i really didn't like it i will say the costumes are a ton of fun okay okay all right um and then i watched a, a movie another movie from 2018 and that's um david robert mitchell's under the silver lake which Ooh. is did you see it 
Yeah, it was one of my favorite movies of that year. Okay. Um, it's weird for me because I'm starting with this movie. For I never saw It Follows or The Myth of the American Sleepover. Hmm. So this is my first David Robert Mitchell movie. Uh, but I loved it. I um, uh, laughed, I think, with the movie at its ridiculousness a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and yet still felt moved by the things that move the character. Uh, but it it does seem like it's a big crazy indulgent movie that's kind of about the idea of david r mitchell going isn't it nuts that they let me make this big crazy indulgent movie <laughs> sure, like absolutely. i feel like i feel like if you take andrew garfield's character as kind of an avatar for david r mitchell um you see him making fun of himself a lot then mm. andrew garfield's character doesn't have much to say he right. doesn't do anything. He, uh, no one can rely on him or depend on him. Um, and increasingly, and he, they can't be around him because now he smells like a skunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yet, despite all that, um, younger, beautiful women are, con- are constantly throwing themselves at him. Yeah. Um, uh, he he seems to um, he's he's he. he he's indulging in this search for meaning in the world that the movie thinks it's funny, thinks it's funny that it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Um, there are parts of the mystery cause it has a neo-noir type of mystery. Yeah. There, are part, there are parts of the, of the mystery that don't make any sense. And I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think that's a like, uh, you know the who who shot the chauffeur chauffeur in yeah. the big sleep type of like uh well we didn't think about that I think it's literally not supposed to make sense like some of the the coincidences of the clues that he find why would that be there that doesn't make <laughs> uh, and even after he uncovers what the mystery is the fact that there are all these clues that lead to it doesn't make any sense why if these people are hiding this thing why are they putting hidden messages about it uh in in places yeah and i think that's intentionally like it doesn't matter none of this matters none of this means anything this guy is drifting through uh a wasted life and no one's questioning him because of you can say it's a movie about about privilege about whiteness about maleness you know it's a very um for a movie that takes place it takes place in what it calls the east side of los angeles this is a pet peeve of mine sure when people uh refer to places like silver lake and echo park is uh yeah that's, east where, it side. Cut, that's where it cuts off right <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah that's that's a west of downtown by the way yeah um so it's not the east side but it it was for a time often referred to as the east side because it was i think the sort of coding there was it's as far east as the white people go um yeah. but now white people have decided to gentrify uh actual like you know glossal park and boyle heights and actual uh east side uh neighborhoods but i'm anyway, still i'm uh, still working on it in here here in north hills i've got my <laughs> i've got my corner and it's it's not taking as fast as i wanted it to uh yeah i don't think that you're you're the maybe the color and tax bracket for a gentrifier, but I don't think you actually have the taste for gentrification. You know, like you're not someone who's going to get excited about a whole foods. Oh no, no, I'm not. Uh, Anyway. um, But uh, uh, I I can't remember what I was saying. It's a, I think the movie is aware of, of his, of, of his privilege. I, it's funny to me when he talks about, 
I think it's supposed to be funny when he's talking, he says something about how like, uh, cause there's a very, like a, a character within the movie who's like a famous like dick clark type of mogul uh, mm-hmm. and tv personality who dies and he says something about like rich people live different lives than we do and i think the movie's very aware that like your life is pretty comfortable uh, yeah. uh as well and the only reason you're uh losing your you're being evicted from your apartment that like it's that is your fault um i do and i one thing that i just and i said this when we when we because it was in my top 10 of that year. Um, and I do like the, I, I do feel like it is, it's sort of one could say an indictment of, of people our age, maybe men specifically, but I also think that just our generation and just the, the things that we use to, to define ourselves, like right. that scene with the songwriter uh-huh. is so powerful to me it's funny it's yeah. oddly menacing uh yeah it's it's, just, it's it's also like because this is a guy who's previously big best known movie was a horror movie and yeah. that's that scene is like a horror movie type scene yeah and part of the horror comes from hey all this stuff that you use to define yourself specifically like pop culture whether it be music or tv or whatever guess what it was just it was the it was the product of uh of just like corporate studio thinking like i'm glad it, good for you it means something to you that's all well and good and certainly the viewer can decide what is meaningful and what isn't even if this like a studio doesn't dictate that but at the same time maybe let's not like as you're as you're trying to define yourself by things maybe let's not go too far in ascribing like tremendous meaning to these mm-hmm. because at their core, this is what many of them were meant to be. And, uh, and the, the idea that it just destroys his entire, uh, outlook on life and his, and his identity is something that I really love that scene. I, I just, it's so great. Anyway, yeah, the whole movie is uh, great. I, I really, really liked it. Um, uh, and it made me realize that, uh, Patrick Fischler has reached the level of actor that I can identify by voice alone because before we sure. meet him, he calls, he calls Andrew Garfield and was like, Hey, do you want to meet up? And I was like, Oh, that's Patrick Fischler. <laughs> oh man. Uh, People wouldn't be able to do that with, by seeing him. Uh, but okay. Uh, all right. You're up. Next up for me, speaking of Patrick Fischler, he is in this film for a short time. This is another Jan de Bont film, uh, one of Jen's favorite movies, which is Lost Twister. Souls? Oh, Twister. Yeah. Lost Souls is Janusz Kaminski. Oh, wrong, wrong DP. Uh, yeah, director. <laughs> turn director, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, whose name starts with J-A-N. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, uh, Jen loves twister and i have seen twister more times than i am happy with um really i've seen it in the theater when i was in what seventh eighth grade uh 96 so whatever whatever that okay, was grade probably but um, yeah i yeah, saw that's it with the only my, time i ever saw it yeah i saw it with my dad in the theater and remember thinking like yeah all right fine whatever <laughs> this looks really into this is these sequences are, are pretty uh, scary. Um, and then that's it. And then once I got married to Jen, there are a handful of movies that I wound up seeing more. And I can appreciate the, the, just the, the commitment to stupidity that this movie has. 
It's co-written by Michael Crichton, of all people. Hmm. Uh, and I imagine a lot of the science in the film probably does hold up. It really is just in the horrendous dialogue and just the con- the contrivances. Something that I love just because it it it's such a 90s attitude, which is you've got this ragtag group of eccentrics who are, you know, who have these... Uh, these rusted out old trucks and vans, but then Carrie Ellis shows up as a guy who, uh, who has corporate sponsorship, which means he's evil. Obviously (laughs) it's like, meanwhile, it's like, I'm pretty sure that if you're a storm chaser trying to come up with new technology to help predict uh, tornadoes so that people can get to safety, corporate money would be extremely helpful uh, <laughs> as far as development of technology. Uh, but no, it just means he's a total sellout, which means of course he has to die as a function of his own hubris. Uh-huh. It just, it's, it's, it's so ridiculous stuff like that. Uh, and the dialogue, it has its moments. Think, I, I think it was on the, the best show a while back where someone described Carrie Ellis's twister as Carrie Ellis's character in twister as the bad guy, because he chases tornadoes for the wrong reasons. Yeah, that's it. And, and even if he, and, and he does like rip off their technology, uh, And it's just like, okay, yeah, that's fine. I realize that you want the credit, but at the same time, if the technology works and people's and lives can be saved, uh, you know, great. Uh, But the, and and I also appreciate stuff like the sound design. Like there's a moment where like a a twister's heading their way and they incorporate like a growl sound into it. Like it's an animal, (laughs) which I kind of appreciate actually. Um, I was, I was laughing at it, but it's like, no, I understand. You want to try and make it seem like this thing is a living entity. Um, But it is just so ridiculous. Uh, Though I will say like, it it made me miss uh, Bill Paxton. Philip Seymour Mm. Hoffman is also in the film. Mm. Um, Although his performance is one. It's like, Oh, I hate characters like this. Uh, And he, fully commits which makes me which means the character is going to be as awful as it is written um but uh but yeah i i i the last time i saw it was a few years ago probably with jen she unlike the skulls which after we watched it and she's like she goes well i guess we gotta get rid of this dvd right and i said why she goes because it's terrible (laughs) twister no, no such luck. She is going to hold on to that. We're probably going to upgrade to Blu-ray. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, and I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed it, but not, not in the way I think it was meant to be enjoyed. I, there, there's an element to it that I respect, uh, which is its total commitment to what it is. Um, but boy, <laughs> what a ridiculous film. Uh, all right. Now, next up, I watched the documentary question mark, uh, bloody nose, empty pockets. I don't know if okay. you've heard of this Tyler, but I think you would love it. I have, not. uh, it comes out, uh, digitally, uh, next week. And I said documentary question mark, uh, because, uh, it's an odd, the way the movie was made is odd. It is ostensibly a documentary that takes place, uh, uh the last 18 hours in a dive bar that's about to close. Um, and so they've like thrown a little party for the regulars and, uh, it's just people hanging out. Uh, but the, 
the the bar is in Las Vegas, except it's not. Uh, it's just outside of New Orleans. The premise is that it's Las Vegas, and also the bar is still open. It's not the last day. So basically, the the Ross brothers who directed the movie came up with an idea to make a documentary about a Las Vegas dive bar that's about to close, and then cast a bar in their hometown, and then stocked it with people who are actual like you know people who hang out in bars that they met in bars they kind of cast it in a way and some people are playing versions themselves some people aren't um but so the the premise is staged but after that everything uh that happens in the movie uh other than they have some like they play some like news reports on the tv that are clearly from like a las vegas news station uh but everything that happens happened like Hmm. the people aren't pretending to get drunk like they're just filming at a bar and they're actually pouring beers and 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 getting drunk and having conversations uh um about their past and about politics and uh the kind of drunken conversations that people uh have um and so it's it's an interesting sort of uh existential question about documentaries like hmm. is this a documentary because everything that happens is is real but the reason right. that everyone came together and is is uh is set up and the movie is not what you're actually watching but it's it is a, documenting something yeah. yeah but it's a a beautiful movie it's also a movie as that is very painful for me to watch right now when I can't hang out in bars. Sure. Because, uh, I, I love these kinds of places and I've seen these kind of people. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, I absolutely think it's a, uh, a, it's, it's on the one hand, it's a movie that I think starts out positioning itself as like, Oh, this is a movie about, about, uh, the sort of de facto families, the families that we create, out of our friends, but also ends up in a kind of sad place reminding you like, this is really just a bunch of drunks and the bar is there to make money and is not going to be there when it can't make money anymore. These aren't actually family. So it's a it's kind of a bittersweet uh, documentary. Um, I really, really, really loved it. And I think you would like it too. And then my final movie, finally, also something that's coming out next week, the new film from Adam Agoyan, uh, guest of honor. Oh, uh, and this uh, stars uh, David Thewlis, and then I can't remember the young actress, uh, something Diolvera, Leila Diolvera, Laysla Diolvera, uh, plays uh, his daughter. Luke Wilson is in it as a as a priest. Um, and the movie, in sort of Adam McGowan style, has a very fractured timeline. Uh, the, so it's hard to say what the story is because uh, it doesn't. It's not told chronologically. But basically, David Thewlis is a food inspector. Um, his daughter is. Uh, uh, at the beginning of the movie, she is meeting with Luke Wilson to set up his funeral. So he's already died by the movie time the movie starts. But then that's mm. chronologically that's at the end. So uh, uh, most of the movie takes place with him still alive. Um, and we see that before she was before he died, she was in prison, and we don't know what for. So that's kind of the mystery is. But there's also mysteries that what is their relationship like uh, as father and daughter. Um, it's it's a very Adam McGowan type of take on, uh, 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 it's a fully ridiculously convoluted plot that is actually much more about character than plot anyway. Uh, and I've seen some negative, it's not a very well-reviewed film. Unfortunately, I've seen some negative reviews, mostly pointing out how melodramatic and ludicrous most of the actual plot 
is and the answers when we get them. And to me, that's not a, in this case, that is not a detraction. <laughs> I, I kind of like how strange the movie is. It reminds me of Felicia's Journey in that another Adam McGowan mm. uh, movie, which is... Which I never saw, actually. Um, oh, speaking, we talked about Bob Hoskins a million years ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's another movie that uh, is often way over the top um, uh, in a way that I really like. And I think Guest Founder does some good things uh, with that too. But the, the main thing, that, the thing that makes it uh, fractured, shattered, non-chronological um, approach bearable is that it the movie is really just made up of a series of one scene shorts. You can see it that way. Like pretty much every scene in the movie, except for maybe the framing device of, of Leslie de talking to Luke Wilson uh, about arranging the funeral. Um, other than that, every single scene in the movie is pretty much a self-contained little, little story. Um, and there are scenes of him just doing his job as a food inspector that have nothing to do with the, with the plot. It's just, here's a scene of him, finding uh some violations in this restaurant and having a conversation with the owner about whether or not they're going to shut down the restaurant that's all that scene is um it's terrific it's an it's a i was going to say unbelievable but that it's a terrific performance from david foolis but that's to be expected uh, yeah. at, at this point um uh I, I i really liked guest of honor uh and i'm surprised that uh so many people who saw it at the during its festival run last year didn't all right, you take us it's, home. You got one more. It sounds like the kind of film I would enjoy. Yeah, I think you would. Um, okay, so last but not least is Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep, which is the uh, the sequel to The Shining. Okay. Um, I don't remember why I wanted to see this, uh, except that I was just curious. I was curious um, to because I knew that. Okay, so. Stephen King wrote The Shining and then Stanley Kubrick made the movie and the movie uh, doesn't have that much to do with the book, really. Um, it, it, it deviates significantly. And then Stephen King wrote the sequel to his book. And then, but then this trying to be true to that still is actively uh, incorporating strong elements of the movie. I mean, like as much as possible. There are mm. there are flashbacks, and they have a, a, a woman who uh, I don't know that I don't remember the name of the actress, but she's approximating Shelley Duvall and doing a very good job of it. Uh, we see Henry Thomas uh, of all people as um, Jack Torrance, the, oh, the wow. Nicholson character, and he does a pretty good job. Widely, uh, wisely uh, sidesteps doing a Nicholson impression um, and just plays the character as written and does a, a good job there, but also visually like recreating the overlook, recreating, you know, the woman in the bathtub and all that sort of thing. Uh, so from that standpoint, the film is, is quite possibly a bit over uh, overly reverent uh, of the movie, but the story here is still pretty uh, effective i think um where dan uh, danny has grown up and has become an alcoholic himself mostly to try to to suppress his shining and the the link that he has mm. to the overlook um but he gets mixed up with this like 13 year old girl who who has a uh, tremendous uh, shining capability and be, and gets on the radar for these like psychic vampires uh, led by the always reliable Rebecca Ferguson. Um, oh. And they 
essentially they all ha- have the, sort of the ability to shine themselves, but they figured out this way to uh, detect people who shine and they, they realize not unlike Pennywise, Pennywise, the dancing clown that like, Oh, if we can scare and physically hurt children who shine, uh, we can absorb their essence and, uh, and eventually kill them. And so there's a a very disturbing sequence where they abduct uh, a young boy uh, played by Jacob Tremblay and the scene in which they do what they do is, is really uh, jarring. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you see Jacob Tremblay, who's just, you know, even though he's getting older, he's still adorable. And you see him just like screaming in pain and fear. It, it's really, it's really affecting uh, in that moment. But, uh, and, and it, you do, it does a really good job of making you hate these characters, these uh, vampire characters. Um so the story is pretty good. I was never particularly frightened or re- even really on edge, but I was invested in in this story and these characters and Danny now Dan like trying to kind of pick himself pick himself back up trying to uh you know, make peace with who he is and where he comes from and all that. And uh, it, it's not a great movie. And certainly it, it's going to, it will feel very much if you watch Jaws two uh, and you, mm-hmm. and you're just like, okay, this, this feels, it feels like a straight to video sequel, even though it isn't. And Dr. Sleep certainly has a, a better visual quality and is trying to evoke the shining as much as possible. It's trying, it's really trying not to feel like a fan film or, or a riff. Like it is, it is trying to connect very directly to that movie. And, uh, and I'm not sure if it always does, but uh, I did enjoy it quite a bit. And I would say I, I recommend it for the most part. Thank you.